The Carl Nelson Show. Grand Rising Wake Up Squad, happy King Day. Thanks for joining us this morning to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Later, uh, professor and journalist A. Peter Bailey will discuss Dr. King's relationship with Malcolm X. Before Peter, the Reverend Reverend Willie Wilson from Union Temple Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. will examine Dr. King's bond with the black church. But before Dr. Wilson, Baltimore actress Carl Snowden will reflect on Maryland's role in supporting Dr. King. But to get us started, we're going to take a look at Stevie Wonder's efforts to make today a federal holiday. Join us, Stevie Wonder's former publicist, Ira Tucker, and also the lucky Louise Foster, who worked with Steve on making this day a holiday. Uh, Brother Ira Tucker, good morning. Good morning. Lucky Louise, good morning. How are you? Um, good morning. All right. Uh, now, are you a Steve's publicist? Of, went back, when did you start working with Stevie? Uh, in 1968. Wow, way back. When did he talk yeah. about, first talk about, you know, that he wanted to see uh, Dr. King's birthday a national holiday? Well, the first, my contact at first was it uh, came from a, a friend of mine named Burtis Coleman, who came to me and told me that um, that uh, Congressman Conyers had uh, presented the bill for almost 10 years and it had been constantly turned down. And he was concerned that we were losing the uh, the people in terms of awareness. And so um, he asked if we could talk, he could talk to Stevie about it. And we both approached Stephen and spoke with him about the issue, and uh, he was impressed that his con- that Conyers was his congressman, and um, he really became excited about it. And for a couple of years, we talked. And, and well, I do you remember uh, when when this initial meeting took place? Do you remember what time, what year? Yeah, it was 1978. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, this was 10 years after um, Conyers uh, submitted the bill. First submitted the bill. And um, so we we got together. We talked about it. We didn't know what we it was a different mindset then. Though I mean, it, this was almost something that was considered Herculean to have a, a national holiday for a black man, and it was unheard of. Uh, and most people thought it, it just couldn't happen. But Steve uh, really uh, embraced the concept, and I'm sure he was thinking along the same lines at some point in time prior to that because it wasn't a surprise to him when we went and talked to him. He was glad that we had the concern. And um, so we came settled on on a parade, uh, trying to launch some awareness with a a parade, proclaiming that we, we should have a national holiday, a day named after Dr. Martin Luther King. And um, so he put together some, uh, a team of people who were some, as far as I was concerned, some of the the, the uh, greatest minds and, and professional, black professionals I've ever worked with, um, especially uh, Dr. Ophiel Dukes, who was uh, very important in sharing his wisdom and information with us in terms of how we could navigate through the political wall, worlds of, of uh, D.C. 
also um, 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 Ron Brown, who who was, uh, I believe he was the Commerce uh, Secretary for uh, uh, President Clinton. And uh, these gentlemen, along with, uh, with, uh, uh, oh, uh, Teresa Cropper and uh, Guy Draper uh, and uh, Donna Brazil, um, all of these people from Washington who gave us, the people who were coming from California to D.C. to learn how, what was going, how things went. Uh, they gave us that information and showed us how to navigate through the political system there. And and and, and uh, Congressman Conyers, his his office was like the hub for everything. And those they were the nicest people that worked in there. They were very kind to us. They took their time with us, showed us, you know, the ins and outs of Washington D.C. We knew nothing about the different police force there, the Capitol Police and the regular police. So we had to learn from the bottom up, and they took the time and showed us. Stevie was invested enough to put the bills for us to stay there, fly back and forth. So it, it was a, a, an effort of, of a lot of people who were of the same mindset, who were willing to, to even, even if you didn't really think it could happen in, in our generation. And at that time, a lot of people really, it, it didn't seem like it, it could be possible. I mean, it would be possible one day, but we could never have foreseen how it, it happened so fast. Right. Let I me mean, I mean, t- turn to Luis, because you know, I got to the game late. I got there in, in 79 before he had that discussion with me. But uh, Luis, do you remember when Steve had that discussion with you guys? Um, I think it was about 1979. Yeah, I just come to the station, and um, we used to always talk about it. And then eventually, you know, the committee was formed. I was happy to become a part of it. But like I was said, it was like, oh, it's hard to believe this is going to actually happen. And all the the moves and the turns and all the things that went on behind putting together the people and knowing what actually goes on in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles. That's a whole different thing there, you know. And right, we never even um, thought about those kinds of things. Um, yeah, cause, I was going to mention, because we, we were basically outsiders. Cause I, I remember exactly, I remember the day we had this discussion. It was 1979, in front of the radio station, actually, with, with uh, Herbie Hancock. And we talked about, you know, he, he just bought the radio station and he's like, he didn't want the radio station to become a, a jukebox. And he says, that's where you come in. But anyway, and then he says, he drops this. He says, we want to do a march to get, we want to make Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. And and he says, are you in? And I thought for a second, because I know Ronald Reagan was a president. And, you know, being from California, we know how Ronald Reagan's uh, affinity for black folks, especially with the Panthers. I said, yeah. <laughs> so I figured if he's going to be all in, I, there's nothing I could do but be all in as, as well. Because uh, Herbie Hancock was saying, yeah, man, let, we're going we're gonna to make this happen. But I understand because Ira goes way back with Steve back in the 60s. So at some point when he was approached, uh, well, well, was who approached who? Did Steve approach the congressman or, or, or the congressman approached Steve, Detroit congressman? Stevie approached the congressman. 
they told him that he felt as though he could help him. And Congressman Conyers was delighted. I mean, if it wasn't for Congressman Conyers, I don't know if we would be having this celebration. He wow. was steadfast. He he submitted the bill the same year that uh, Dr. King was assassinated and continued to submit it every year after that until the uh, Reagan signed. I mean, it was just... Um, it was an effort that he felt, even though it was, he was being it was being shot down every year. I see that was the thing that kind of uh, deflated some some people's opinions about whether or not we could accomplish this. It was like uh, people felt like it's a great moral thing to do. It's a good effort. We can go out there. We can we can influence, and maybe the next generation will have a, a group that can come in and make it happen. But we need to keep the spirit and keep the get the momentum going on this. But uh, it was because we had been shot down for 10 years straight trying to get it by a lot of people who had various agendas, you know. And um, it was important for us to, to move forward, even though we, we might have thought it, it would have taken longer than it would have to get it done, it was important just to move it forward. And and Stevie was of that mindset. You know, you know, when I think about Congressman Conyers, because he was pushing for reparations before he left the, the Congress, I'm just thinking if, if we had that energy, maybe we would have achieved reparations, because I know Stevie got behind the, the, the King holiday, and it was sort of flattering, as you mentioned, but when he got behind it, it picked up momentum. Uh, Louise, you were on the committee form to to get the holiday bill passed did you guys ever have the any doubts that this would be celebrating uh king day as a federal holiday kind of had doubts but we had a goal and we knew that with help from all the people in the community and the folks in um washington dc and the congressmen and different people behind us that it was quite possible um so we worked a lot and um at first you couldn't imagine anything like this happened, you know, and we never really totally doubted it, but we knew that it would happen. It was a long process, and when when we saw things beginning to change and the community was getting involved and everybody understood the goal of Dr. King, a lot of people did not know a lot about Dr. King. Um, the older people and the younger people became involved, and you can see why he wanted to get this holiday in. And in 1979, 80, things were, were different. You know, it was moving around. California was a lot different. Um, overall, it was different. And um, so we just continued to, to push on and to be committed to what it was that we wanted to get done. Yeah. 12 at the top of the hour, Ira Tucker, the Louis Foster, we're discussing how this holiday came about. Many of you don't know the Stevie Wonder's uh, Stevie Wonder's commitment to make this holiday because he was the one basically who pushed the ball over the line. And Ira, when when Steve was doing this, did he, these other because you you were published, did these other efforts? Did he you know did he stop recording? Did he stop touring? Or was it 100 percent or 50 percent? How would you gauge his his efforts? He was 100 percent across the board. He was still touring, still working. I mean, because he was financing the uh, our, the, the entire project. 
Um, but he was also 100% in being in touch with everything that was going on. The people that were put together in the various committees were people he felt as though knew what to do. And, and our plan was to have this massive parade and uh, share our grievances and to share our love and, and, and to let people know that, uh, as the poster said uh, that morning, it's good enough for George and Abe, it's good enough for Martin. You know, that we wanted a, a national holiday. We wanted some representation in that area. We also knew that, um, you know, things were things were that what they were. The, the, there were there were people in Congress who really had uh, some serious uh, gripes against it, who were trying to deflate our moves no matter what we did. They, you know, we had hearings, and uh, there were people who came to the hearings and testified who who had some horrible things to say about Dr. King, who was there to try to embarrass uh, his wife. Uh, we were we were uh, we were organized and we were informed because we had some of the best minds uh, in terms of how to make this happen. We had those people working with us. Um, I'll, I'll hold that right there. I really got to take a short break here. I'll let you finish mm -hmm. when we get back. Because you mentioned financing, I'll go to the story about that. Also, that effort you talked about on Capitol Hill. 14 after the top of the hour. Family just waking up. Our guest is Ira Tucker, Lucky Louise Foster, that worked with Stevie in creating this holiday that we know as Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. You know, had it not been for Stevie Wonder, this is in, in our estimation, we wouldn't be celebrating this holiday today. But anyway, let's take a short break. We're back in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, discussing the holiday, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday holiday, how it came to be. A lot of folks don't know behind the scenes of what happened, and Stevie Wonder's push to make it happen. We have two of them, people who worked on that committee to make it happen. Ira Tucker, who was Stevie's publicist, and Lucky Louise, who was working at this radio station at the time. And before we left the break, Ira, you were speaking, but... And we also got to uh, got to uh, commend uh, Stevie's Chicago attorney, Teresa Tuck, uh, Teresa Cropper. You mentioned Cropper. Teresa earlier, yeah, Teresa earlier, uh, and some other folks in D.C. But she was the she was really the one who figured out how we can how legislation is passed and what we had to do with it. Having said that, though, did any of you guys accompany Steve when he when he went to Congress and he had to go th meet with the senators and, and House members and, and trying to convince them to vote for the bill? Because I understand there were you know some we went to some of these meetings. Someone just wanted to. Take pictures. They had their families there to take pictures. And they would come out. Well, do you think we got their vote? Do you think we got their vote? Did you, any of you guys go through any of that? I did. I went to a couple with him. Um, and you're right. It was. See, the thing about it, it, it was just as foreign to a lot of ears as it was when you said, "Well, one day we'll have a black president." Well, that was almost impossible for some people to fathom as well. The same thing happened with this day. So when we would go to people, they 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 were they were comfortable uh, with talking to Stevie, but they were more interested in taking pictures and and hitting that aspect of it. Yeah, and and, and Louise, you know, one we used to discuss it with the one day there's going to be a day when everybody in America will say, "I have to mention his name." But this is a holiday. Can you imagine somebody in Maine? 
some somewhere in North Dakota, <laughs> you know, has to celebrate a black man's holiday. We used to we used to talk about that. How you know impactful that will be? Just like you know, we talk race Dr. King's profile, but more than that, it was not just Dr. King's persona. It's because Dr. King, you know, talked about peace. Can you talk about that a little bit for us, Louise? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Is Luis still with us? I think we may have lost Luis. Well, 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 Ira, because you know he was uh, Steve. Steve was about Martin Luther King because he he mentioned that he met Dr. King. Did he have? Did he ever talk to you about that meeting? No, no, I've never, I didn't talk to him about that. Um, I knew that he had he met him, but we never really talked about the the nature of the meeting. He, it was impressive. I know that for him. Uh, he he. Uh, he had this look on his face. He would talk about it, and you'd see this look come about. Because the greatness, you know, greatness knows greatness, you know. And he, he knew Dr. King's power. And um, it was evident, again, when we you go to the hearings, um, how uh, there were so many things that were put, roadblocks put up. It cost the country too much money to do this. But it doesn't cost them too much money to do another person's holiday. But it would cost too much to do this holiday. Everything that you could think of was put in the way to block uh, us moving forward and trying to 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 get some momentum going. Um, then it came the, the question of uh, the Capitol Police and how they would be utilized in this. And, and then it was a question. That it was always the problem of, of uh, something going wrong being put in front of us because we were trying to amass a gathering of, of black people and white people and a lot of people from various uh, um, ethnic groups to come together over this issue. It was always uh, uh, put in, in front of us that there might be some type of violence, you know, and uh, so we had to deal with uh, all of these things. And again, people, like I said, Oldfield Dukes and Brian uh, Brown, especially uh, my one of my heroes in this with this whole uh, Martin Luther King holiday was was Guy Draper. Mm-hmm. Guy Draper was I mean I I was just totally impressed with Guy Draper. He he was a man who was totally committed to the project and who put in a tremendous amount of time in getting meetings for us with with uh, uh, Ron and and. O'Field and, and a lot of the people. Donna Brazil was also another person who worked arduously and worked with us and pulling pieces together to make this happen. The second march, we ended up getting a lot of help from, from Daryl Brooks and Carol Kirkendall. They were very influential on that second march and helping us to facilitate what we needed to get done in Washington. So it was a time. 26 out of the top of the hour. Let's talk to Louise now about that first march. Louise, what do you remember about that first march? 
Well, I remember getting there. It was very cold. I do. But uh, I remember um, how we had to do all the petitions, call all the different people, and uh, Ronald Reagan was there. And so we had sort of a feeling like, wow, is this what we have to go against? And being in California is so much different, as you know, being in D.C., people have a different kind of mindset. I wasn't at any of the meetings there. I was mostly dealing with people from West Coast and by phone and making calls to this congressperson, following up on different things like that. One of the other clocks that it takes to make these kinds of things happen. Um, we organized a group of people, our listeners, who came with us on the march. And the feeling after we got there is like, is this really happening? You know, um, one person's dream coming to uh, fruition. And it was just something that you cannot ever forget in your mind. And all the work that we did so many years, it's commitment. And people yeah. were truly, truly committed to make this happen. I didn't have right. as much communication with the other people as Ira did, because he was with them on a daily basis. I was doing the work with March and also doing the radio program and working with you, Carl. Yeah, it, it was interesting. You know, 42 years ago, Louise, that's what it was, and, I, and this is what I remember. Air Florida, there was a plane crash when we flew into right. D.C. right the night before. Air Florida, over the 14th Street Bridge, uh, 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 crashed to hit the bridge and, and went into the Potomac. And when we flew in and, and the pilot was telling us, look out the window, you could see the tail of the, of the Air Florida uh, crash that was there. And, uh, and it was, you're right, it was, it was cold. It was five degrees that day. I'll never forget that because before we went out on the march, it was listening to the radio trying to get the weather report. And the guy says, it's going to be five degrees. That's all you're getting today. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> In case you're honest, you can't count. And he was making fun of it, you know. And, and it, was so, it, the, it was so cold that our equipment froze. We were sending the feed back to L.A. And it froze. That's what I, I remember about uh, 42 years ago. It seems like it was yesterday, that, that very first march. I remember after the march, though, Iris, Stevie said, uh, are we going to do it again? We're going to do it again until until they make this a holiday. We're going to keep coming back to Washington, D.C. Did, did he express Because he expressed that on the stage. Did he express that to you uh, privately, that we're going to continue to come to D.C. To, to, to ask or demand that this, this day be a holiday? He sure did. He was very serious about that. Um, there was, uh, again, there was some folks who worked with him and lawyers and other people, not not Teresa, but some other people who were very concerned about how much money it was costing them to do this. And, you know, how could he think about going back and doing it a, another year? Uh, but he, he did, and because he was committed to do it. And like he said, he was he had planned to do it until he couldn't do it no more until we, we got the holiday. So it was it was uh, let me chime in here on the financial part, Ira, because I don't think people on the, around the country understand this. And I'm going to share this anyway. When we got back uh, to L.A. after after the first march, the accountant, uh, the corporate office called me and says, do you know so and so? And I said, no. Do you know so and so? Was he with you guys in D.C.? He says, I'm getting all these bills from these hotels. <laughs> 
you know, and they said they were part of the margin. It was Stevie's margin. And I, uh, and I told her, I said, listen, you might as well pay because the bull's going to say pay it anyway. Because that that's I knew his conviction that, you know, he's going to call a hotel bill. You know, those people back then, they didn't ask you for a credit card or or when you go to the hotel. You just tell me you're part of this Stevie Wonder's group and they gave you hotel room service. And she was telling me, but these, these guys, they call them room service. These people, you know, and, they, and, they, and it was it was quite a lot. It was quite a lot. So when you talked about, you know, the other five, that part I do remember, you know, and and they just wrote, they paid for it. And people don't understand that. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about that because, you know, no, but it, Stevie paid it, it, for it. It happened. Yeah, it happened. I mean, Steve, that march cost Steve well over a million dollars. And a million dollars in, in 1980, 81 was a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. You know, and um, the fact that we, we were staying in rented apartments uh, because we had to be in D.C. for maybe a, a month or so, you know, working, uh, he was paying, picking up all those expenses, paying salaries as well, and still trying to work. So, I mean, he, he had a lot on his plate, but he, again, he, he saw the big picture. And and he wasn't afraid to make the step to put it to 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 back up with 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 those ducats. He wasn't able. He wasn't afraid to do that. He he felt as though if we if we could make some type of impact, we we would just. I mean, the the, the scariest part, and I I know exactly what you mean by the night before because I saw that plane sitting out there as well in the water. It was so scary, but. The night before, the thing that was scaring us to death was that we were wondering if anyone was going to show up. It was so cold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the and weather was, was horrible. Man, it started to snow that morning. You know, and, you know, when we left the hotel, we were kind of really almost kind of down because it was like, oh, my goodness. You know, it's freezing cold. It's snowing. And on the way... To the uh, to the site, we start seeing people walking with with signs, and, and the closer we got, the more people we saw walking with signs. You know, the, the Martin MLK Day. You know, it was just a wonderful thing to see. It uplifted all of our spirits because um, that morning, the first thing in the first thing that morning, we saw that snow coming down. And as cold as it was, we just said, I wonder if we're going to have anybody, if it's going to be worth all of this money and effort and energy spent in doing this. We, will they show up? And they did. They yeah, showed amazing. up and, and showed yeah, out. They sure did. Washington, D.C. And, and the surrounding folks who came to the march, the first one. Uh, yeah, they they showed up. But we're going to take a short break. When we come back, though, Ira and Louise, if you talk about some of the folks who were at the first march with Stevie, some of his friends, join him on stage as well. If you can talk about that, I'd appreciate it. 26 minutes away from the top of our family. We've got two members of the committee we're working with Stevie Wonder to make this day now a national holiday. <laughs> Getting some back, some inside scoop of what happened to make it happen. Because without Stevie Wonder, most of us who know who worked with him at the time, don't think this day would ever happen, but he pushed for it, and, and now we're celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday 
all around this country today. 800-450-7876. You got any questions for our guests? Reach out to us. We'll take them in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. 21 minutes away from the top there on this King Day. Happy King Day. Or as Kevin would say, happy Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday. That's the day today. We're discussing behind the scenes what happened. Stevie Wonder's role in making this day a holiday that we all can celebrate. Before we go back to our guest, Ira Tucker and Lucky Louise Foster, who worked with Steve on this project, uh, we're gonna, I'm just going to remind you, we're going to continue to discuss Dr. King today. Later this morning, we're going to talk with journalist and professor a peter bailey you know him he's done a lot of work with malcolm well he's going to discuss dr king's relationship with malcolm x and he told me to tell folks you know you don't want to miss what he's got to share with us before peter though we're going to hear from the reverend willie wilson from union temple baptist church in the district he's going to examine dr king's bond with the black church before we do that uh, carl snowden an activist out of baltimore is going to reflect on maryland's role in supporting dr king and later this week you're going to hear from banking and financial expert uh, donald parker economist dr julianne malvo Grio Baba Lumumba will be here, and also chemitologist Tony Brad will join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, before the break, and Luis, asking you some of the folks that, that helped Steve on that first march. Do you remember the names of some of the people? Oh, in terms of uh, working uh, the project? No, those who showed up who for support, some of his, his quote unquote famous friends. Oh, oh, I, I I was so busy that day. I remember Johnny Taylor because he had on this huge coat, <laughs> <laughs> and and also, um, I'm trying to think of who else was there. Mm-hmm. I remember Johnny, Gil Scott. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So Gil yeah, Scott, Gil Scott he was, was on there. stage. Yeah, I remember Gil Scott being there. But, uh, I mean, as you know, I mean, you all were doing the radio. I don't do you all. Were, the one of you all didn't freeze to death out there. We were. <laughs> we were under the <laughs> And Gladys was there as well. Gladys, that's right. Yeah, I remember Gladys being there. Um, but it was it was just, it was a wonderful And Coretta Scott King was there. Let's not forget uh, uh, course, Dr. King's widow, Coretta Scott King. But he, he, let me ask you this, though. Not all the members of Congress or all the states embraced the holiday for Dr. King. Do you guys remember some of the Congress people or some of the states who were, who were sort of reluctant to embrace the holiday for Dr. King? Well, I remember Jesse Helms had a real issue um, with, with, with doing it. Uh, Arizona, I believe, was uh, whatever. There were quite a few states that uh, originally they... Um, as I recall, some of the states embraced the idea early in the game and had and 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 designated a, a day themselves. Others came later. Some waited until after the bill was passed to come in. Um, it, it wasn't really something that they just everyone just stepped right into, uh, and especially uh, uh, some of the southern states. Uh, it was an issue there. Um, you know, we we had a, we had a lot of a lot of people who didn't want this to happen, who who just did not want to see. They they came up with every possible angle that you can come up with to to, to sabotage the effort. You know, right. but again, you know, we 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 were all committed, and 
and I've never worked with with such professional, with so many great professional people as I did at that time. It was just a pleasure for me to be involved with them, and I, I benefited from that uh, a lot in terms of of uh, seeing how uh, a major operation can be pulled off like that. Um, it was something permits had to be gotten, and they had to be, they had to be paid for. There was all sorts of things that you never yeah. thought about, you know, that came into play, and and the, everything cost money, you know. So it was it was quite a commitment from Stevie. Um, uh, he's not mentioned enough in this in this realm of this holiday. Neither is uh, uh, Congressman Conyers. Right. These are the people we should be talking about. These people as well. Uh, I mean, for what for what they put in and, and the time and effort that they donated to this cause and make to, to make this possible for us to enjoy. And um, I know you all did a fantastic job with the radio. I was everybody was talking about how you seemed like you went all over the world with this. <laughs> you know, there were days, Ira, I get, I get to the station and they say, hey, we got a ticket for you to go to uh, San Francisco. There's a there's a rally at the, at the Golden Gate Bridge. So here's a ticket from LAX to SFO. We get to SFO, X is going to meet you, and then we go to the bridge. And then we got to report live and, and get all this information out to all the black radio stations. There were many days like that going, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to San Diego. But the, everybody pushed to make this, uh, this holiday a reality. But Arizona... As you mentioned, I was one of the last states to come on board. Yeah. They they were very reluctant. I, I think I think when when it was almost there, because if you recall, we started start to go state by state. If we couldn't get make it a federal holiday, one of the, the and Luis could probably chime in on this. One of the issues we said, let's go state by state and let's get all the states to ratify uh, the, the holiday, and then then we'll go the federal route. And and getting that as that part of the piece, then you had to deal with all the different uh, states and. The, and deal with their issues, whether they would support Dr. King. Because everything, as you mentioned, costs money, and it's also political. Louise, your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just looking, thinking about Arizona, who forfeited a Super Bowl because of the King, King holiday. And, and the fact that um, Arkansas, um, is known as the Martin Luther King Jr. birthday and Robert E. Lee birthday, I thought that was an insult from 1965. 2017. The fact that you got a chance to see all the racism in the uh, in in America from a different perspective, things that you never really thought, because our our goal was to spread, you know, King's dream about freedom and equality and all those those different kinds of things. Excuses like, well, he was never a president. Oh, he was a communist. Oh, he was this. He was that. Like I was said, any kind of excuse you, you can think about. But I believe that Arizona was probably one of the biggest thorns in our side. Yeah, it was. You know, I remember that Steve wouldn't uh, perform in Arizona until they, they sign on on the King Bill. But let me ask both of you guys this, though. Ira and, and Luis, do you think if we try to do that effort today to make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday, do you think we, we would succeed? I think the mindset is totally different today. Um, it wouldn't, I think it, it, it wouldn't be as difficult today as, as it was back then. Back then, again, that, that was just as strange as saying there would be, there could be a black president. It was just mm-hmm. something people didn't believe. They didn't think we were worth it, first of all. 
And then they just didn't believe that we had the wherewithal to pull it off. And again, kudos to all of the black radio stations, to the black churches and the HBCUs. The, all of that connection is what made this happen, what brought people out and gave them that information that they needed to make the decision to support the effort. And again, it was a, a, something that I don't, I don't know if we, could, if we could come together like we did back then either. Um, there might be too many differences now amongst us. Uh, back then, we were we were all of the same mindset. We wanted this. We wanted to to make this happen. We wanted to show that we could do this, and we wanted to set some type of precedent for the future. And we mm. we were able to do it. And Luis, do you do you remember any pushback from from when we were starting to do this? Uh, because I can't recall, I was so focused on getting this this done. But from where you sat, did you see, hear any pushback, whether it be black or white? Um, only a few, not not a lot, you know, just a few people, mostly positive stuff. Um, and at that time, we were just starting to get into the Internet. We would get a lot of people calling. And everything seemed to be positive, and there would be some naysayers who say, oh, this ain't going to never happen, or it's going to be a big riot, this is going to happen, and all kinds of things like that. But I was just looking at the support that came, like, from Canada, Israel, and Japan, Netherlands. These countries were celebrating uh, King Holiday before some of our own states were. And yeah. looking back at the history of it all, and also I ha we have to mention Pacifica Radio, who were really right. instrumental, too, in helping us get uh, the word all the way across. And That's right, because we use their facilities the when we're in D.C. To, to broadcast and live. you remember, Carl, about how the press said there were like 50,000 people at the march? Yeah. <laughs> it was more like 500,000. I think they left a zero off. Yeah. Well, they they do that all the time. But Ira, the, 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 let's talk about the security for the march because you mentioned you know there's several law enforcement agencies in Washington D.C. Which if you're not in the, in the D.M.V. era, you just don't know. You just think there's just the, the, the D.C. police, the Metropolitan Police, but you got all different kinds of law enforcement agencies. Did you have to deal with each one of them when putting this march on? How do you get you know yeah. permits and all that kind of stuff? That was one of the things. We had to deal with everyone different, separately. I mean, they were different entities, and we had to deal with them on, on with what their requirements were. Uh, the Capitol Police required a certain amount, certain certificates and, and permits to do this. We had to contact and make and had meetings with the D.C. police, the Metropolitan Police. So we, we had to deal with – that's why I was saying the – the importance of people like Oldfield Dukes and, and, and Draper and, and Teresa Cropper, all of these people who knew the ins and outs, who knew the workings of Washington, and they were able to help us, the ones who didn't know, to show us how to navigate through and to make sure that we set up meetings and that we were there for those meetings. And that because if you missed the meeting, you know, the, the the feeling was well, forget it. You know, we're not. We don't want to. We don't have anything to do with it. So we didn't want that to happen because everybody was looking for a way out. You know, they were all looking for something to go wrong or something to happen so that they could say, oh, forget about it. This is the pipe dream. You know, but we were there. And we made this happen, and we and we, we stayed the course, and then put the energy in it. Yeah, let me ask both of you this question: to ten away from the top. Of the Were you surprised that actually that it, it took a run of Reagan 
This guy's know how Ronald Reagan rolled when he was in California. He took him to put his signature on the bill. Louise, you first. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, it was surprising. We never expected that, Reagan. And um, what caused him to do it that way, of course, you know, with politics behind it, um, anything is, can't sound anybody out. I don't know what his was on his mind when he said it. And, and signed it, even though he signed it, it still took three more years to get it get it going. That was in 1983, I believe. It took three more years before it actually became a holiday, federal holiday. How about you, Ira? Were you uh, surprised that, uh, that it was Ronald Reagan who put his signature on this? You could have knocked me over with a feather. I mean, of all of the people, uh, for Ronald Reagan to sign off on this bill was just a very shocking thing. The, the, the fact that it came so fast after those marches, you know, everything just ratcheted up to 100, it seemed like, after those marches. So, the, so, so what, what, we was, what we were trying to do and pumping energy back into that, into uh, uh, what uh, Congressman Conyers had done, had really worked because it got it got people back into it, and it moved fast. I mean, uh, in August I think of '83, uh, the House passed it, then then the, the Senate passed it. I think in October, uh, and Reagan signed off on it in November of '83. You know, I mean, it was amazing how how fast it went after that, and and. It was a testament to all of those people who, who who stuck with it and believed in it. And it was a complete victory for Stevie. I mean, uh, he, I, he... I got to ask you this, eight away from the top of the hour. Uh, this song, Happy Birthday. You, you, I'm sure you were there when he was doing that, singing that in the production. Your thoughts about that? It was great. We would, we, We thought it was just... It, well, first of all, for him, he held it from us. Uh, we didn't really know that he, he said he was working on something, you know, that 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 it, this was like for the second march. And he was putting this piece together, but we didn't really know what it was. But then when we heard it, it was like, oh, man. <laughs> you know? And the fact that this is going to be a happy birthday song forever, you know, we were all delighted. And, and and again to show you know the kind of talent this man has, you know to capture those lyrics and to make it possible to put the music together to get everybody involved and to come up with a, a chorus that everyone can sing, you know that and and people play that song for everybody's first page now, you know right. it's 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 just something that it's almost ingrained in everyone now. That's why. I said people like Stevie, they're rare. We're very fortunate to have someone like that around, still around. 
And for someone back then, that far back in time, to have believed in something strongly enough to have invested the type of money that he put into it and the energy that he put behind it. And uh, it was, it's just great to be here and celebrate this day. I mean, I, I get a special feeling every time this comes around. I can understand. Six away from the top. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, though, I want to talk more about that Hotter Than July album. I want to get your thoughts about Louise. They, they, Stevie put that on his Hotter Than July album. 800-450-7876. Discussing this morning's holiday, how it came to be. Many of you don't know some of the backstory. The entertainer Stevie Wonder's efforts. That now we can celebrate Thunder King's birthday as a national holiday. What are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. We'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. Minute after the top of the, the hour. And happy King Day, world. This is what it is. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday's holiday. It's a federal holiday. All the federal offices are closed. And one of the persons behind pushing for this was, was entertainer Stevie Wonder. And I got two members of the committee who worked with Steve in getting this done. Ira Tucker, his publicist, and Lucky Louise Foster worked at the radio station, Stevie's radio station in L.A. Before we talk about the, the song, uh, Carl Snowden, by the way, activist in Baltimore, is on deck. We'll get to him momentarily. Sister Sabrina's joining us in D.C. She's on line three and she has a question. Good morning, Sister Sabrina. Hi, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, good morning. I hope everything, everybody's safe and blessed. Uh, quick question. I remember, I certainly remember with the bridge um, with D.C. because uh, uh, I was living in Virginia and all about the temperatures, about how it being so cold and, and that. But the main pro- main issue that we had in Virginia when the bill was passed, when it was made into federal uh, and, and also with state, too, is that Virginia put it in place of celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday, but most of the businesses had that they were closed for Robert Lee's birthday. And we were, we were, of course, we were insulted by that fact of seeing that, you know, with banks or whatever, you know, and a lot of them didn't didn't even mention that it was in our in honor of Martin Luther King's birthday, but would say uh, uh, instead Robert Lee's uh, birthday. Um, what do we have to say that because that would that was the fact that you know uh, for some states such as Virginia and I think. Well, truthfully, I don't know which state exactly, but it was a problem that we were noticing and we're horrified about that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, yeah, Sister Louise Sabrina. mentioned that. Louise yeah, brought that up earlier. My notes here about Virginia it being known as Lee Jackson King Day, combining King's birthday with the established Lee Jackson Day. And in 2000, Lee Jackson Day was moved to the Friday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, establishing King Day as a holiday in its own right. Lee Jackson Day was eliminated in 2020. Mm. Well, that's the reason. So Virginia was late to the party, just like uh, Arizona. But let me talk about, the, as I mentioned before we left for the break, uh, the song, Happy Birthday, that Stevie did. And and Louise, your thoughts? He put it on the Hotter Than July album. 
Um, I really don't know all the makings of that. All I know is that we played it on the air in that perspective. I think that Ira would probably know a little bit more about the compilation. And right. Let me jump in here because, you know, Ira, when, when we saw it out there and then when the Grammys came out and it, it was overlooked, you know, people were saying it was political because of because the song, yeah. the happy birthday song. Uh, in Stevie's camp, because that was just where us were talking about that, the radio said, but in Stevie's camp, did, did that was that did that ever come up that you know the, the it, it was ignored by the Grammys because of the happy birthday song on, on the album yeah we all thought it, it, it had a hint of, of uh, being overlooked because everybody felt as though it was political and and um, that wasn't the spirit of the Grammys at that time um, and and again, it's the record industry. You don't know. People vote behind closed doors, so you don't know what's going on there. But we did feel as though it, because it, it was so well-received and, and and people were really into it, it, it basically fueled the album. So uh, we couldn't quite understand, you know, why it was overlooked. But, again, it, uh, it didn't matter because... Um, it has it, it's it's life has been a long time, you know, and it's yeah. still alive. Was was that the album Ira where where all the songs ran together? You know, people if folks of a certain age can remember this about albums with the different cuts on there, they would pause before it goes to the next one. But all, right. <laughs> was that the one that Stevie put all the songs just ran together? You didn't know when they, they yeah. started. Well, actually, that that was a ploy to to. For, for radio, mm. we figured you know you play it and it would run into the next tune, and people would want to. Well, what was that next song? You know, <laughs> so but he he managed to to pull that off as well. A lot yeah. of people didn't like that. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> I thought that was cool because yeah. uh, nobody else had done that. Yeah, and true, I, but but a lot of radio stations thought it was cheating. You know. It was, they were like, well, you know, he's, he's running into the next, you can hear a little bit of the next song before this one goes off, you know. And uh, But it, it worked because folks liked it and, and it was a successful album. Yeah, it was. It has a lot of great cuts on that album. 800-450-7876. Sandra's on line four calling from Baltimore. Good morning, Sandra. Oh, good morning, Carl, and to you and your guests. And you asked the question, could we pull something off like that today? Absolutely not, because we got too many rich, selfish people. And let me give my love to Stevie. We should do something great for Stevie while he's living to show appreciation of what he did for Dr. King. And he always they people always talking about age. Stevie was a young man when he did this, and he put his money out there. He loved Dr. King. And let me say something else to the people. Stop taking his Dr. King's DR, his title away and calling him King. He is Dr. King. I hate when people do that. Give him his due. He deserved that. And as far mm -hmm. as Stevie, I love Stevie, and I love what he did for Dr. King. Not only did he talk to talk, he walked to walk. He wasn't about buying all cars, houses, and jewelry, and a white woman on his arm. He was about the business. He put it out there. He saw a chance to do it, and he put his money up front, and he did it. 
That's sure did. Thanks, Sandra. Oh, right. You want to bring here LeBron James? They got nothing but money. Uh, Bama ain't got nothing but money. I'm calling the road on them. They ain't gonna do nothing. All right. They should get behind. They should get behind pushing for reparations. No, they're too scared. They're too scared. To think they're gonna be shut down. But Stevie, Stevie wasn't scared. He had a That's dream right. and he pushed it forward. That's so That's true. Right. Thank you, Sandra. All right, Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, Steve wasn't af- afraid of anything. You know, it's, no. you know, it's, it's a. I, I don't know how to place it because because you, you were around him closer and longer than I was. So you know, he's he. It's it's a different person. When did you real quickly though? When did you find out, uh, determine that he was he was uh, sort of a special person? When he. Um... When when he would go to the bathroom, he turned the light on, <laughs> and it took me two years to understand that. So one day I asked him, Steve, when you go to the bathroom, why do you turn the light on? And his answer was, I never thought that you would ask me. Why why did it take you so long to ask me? Because he didn't have to turn the light on, <laughs> but when he when he turned it on and when he turned it off. It turned a light on in my head two years later that he was sending me a message. And uh, it was wake up. (laughs) And I did. I woke up because he didn't have to turn that light on or off. You know, (laughs) but that that was the way Steve has in communicating with you. You know, and Mm. that means you welcome to my world. You know, and, and I agree with Sandra. There should be something. I think we should we should get together and have a a statue of Stevie Wonder somewhere. You know, we yeah. we should come together and do and push for that, like he pushed for us to have a national holiday. Let's 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 put a statue of Stevie Wonder someplace, Washington right. D.C. or in Detroit. You know, let's do something to, like that to show where we are. And again, I agree with. Uh, Sandra, when she says that, you know, people need to focus on other things other than material. You know, let's, let's let us. Focus and let me just chime in here, because for the folks that. who haven't been around him, Ira and, and Luis, you know, this he doesn't even look like he's you don't think of, of that. He's, he's blind, that he's got a handicap. He goes to the bathroom. He goes, he goes right. he does whatever he wants. He walks around. He pick up the phone. He'll dial. It just it just it, it, it's not a handicap. It's, it's just slight inconvenience at times. How do you well, how do you see? If you could see him putting elect, electronic stuff together. I mean, Steve would set up his own equipment. You know, so how do you find a, a, a you know to put this cord in there, this uh, this cord in there? I mean, it's 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 amazing to see how he adapted and and how how well uh, uh, knowledgeable he is of, of what uh, is around him. And how to use what's around it. So all of those years in the studio, and all of those years he spent, you know, defining, getting all of these, refining his, his senses, and getting these things to a point where he can he can manage all of this. It's really paid off for him. It's 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 something to see. I tell you that a lot of people, more people need to see how he hooks his stuff up because it's incredible to watch. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah, even around his home, it's just all you gotta do is remember to take the 
kids' toys off the stairs. <laughs> he's cool. He can just move around. <laughs> Even the radio station, he move around. He goes, what office or everything else? He's, but listen, we're coming up on a, a break real soon. And uh, uh, Ira, you were in a BBC report on Stevie's, uh, was it Intervisions? Can you tell yeah, us about it real quick? Uh, Intervisions is 50 years old. It was celebrating the 50th anniversary of Intervisions, and the BBC asked me to do an interview with them uh, regarding that issue. And it was a, a wonderful time recalling uh, uh, the uh, time of the album and also the time of his accident when, when he almost was killed in a car accident. So uh, uh, they did a wonderful job, I thought, uh, in, in producing it. Um, it's uh, some other, my, my sister, uh, Linda, Linda Lawrence is on them as well. And uh, it was a, it was a pleasure. And your sister sang in the Supremes, right? Yes, and also with Stevie's uh, background group. When before there was Wonder Love, it was called Third Generation, and uh, she sang in, in that group as well. Sang background with Stevie. All right, and somebody said Stevie Wonder Boulevard. There's already a Stevie Wonder Street or Boulevard it's in Detroit that was done recently. So we need to come up with something else. Ira, yeah, I want to thank you. <laughs> yeah, Louise, I want to thank you. If they can give Dwayne Wade a statue, and Magic a statue, it sure can give Stevie a statue. Yeah. I agree on that one. That's a great idea. How about that? All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you for sharing that information. We're going to take a call, uh, short break here. Then Carl Snowden is waiting for us, and Bob in Buffalo has a question about the holiday as well. 800-450-7876. And happy Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday's happy holiday man. for you. Happy Amen. Thank for you. Kevin, that's what Kevin thank wants you. me to say, the whole thing. <laughs> So, Sandra, you started something here. But anyway, we got to take the break. We'll be back in four minutes here with Thank Carl Snowden. So All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB and also in the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, for information is power. And good morning, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour. It's uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthdays. Uh, holiday today. It's a federal holiday. And next up, we have uh, Carl Snowden, an activist out of Baltimore. Good morning, Carl. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thanks for being so patient with us. Because uh, you're going to help us out and reflect on, you know, Maryland's support of Dr. King. Can you tell us about the first memorial for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the state of Maryland? Yes, I can. Do you can. remember what that was? Carl, one of the things that's important that people need to understand is that Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday didn't become a national holiday by happenstance, by coincidence, or accident. When Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered in 1968, it was the late Congressman John Conyers that put in the first bill to make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday. It took 25 years for Dr. King's birthday to become a national holiday, and it was a long struggle to make that happen. But particularly the older listeners on uh, who are listening, they will recall marching in the snow, marching marching in blizzard. Their marches always took place in January. And I can still remember now people getting on buses from all over the country coming to Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial to call on the nation to make King's birthday a national holiday. There was a strategy that was developed back in the late 70s, and it's a strategy that worked. Trying to get it as a national holiday proved to be very difficult for a host of reasons. So one of the strategies that was put in place was to do it state by state. And so Maryland has the distinction of being the second 
state and the nation to make Dr. King's birthday a holiday. It was a holiday here in the state of Maryland in 1974, six years after Dr. King had been assassinated. That was no small feat. And the late delegate Kenneth Webster, who was from Baltimore City, was the person that put that bill in and made Dr. King's birthday a state holiday. And I point that out because too often people allow other people to control the narrative. Everyone would think that the Dr. King's birthday became a national holiday and everybody was on board, when in fact there was great resistance for Dr. King's birthday being a national holiday. The late Jesse Helms from North Carolina recalled King a communist. Ronald Reagan reluctantly signed the bill. He didn't want to sign it. It was just this national movement that was taking place at the time. So I just don't want people to look back on uh, King's birthday becoming a national holiday and assume that it was an easy feat. In fact, it took a lot of work, took over two decades, and a lot of people can be given credit for making this particular holiday a national holiday. You had asked about the memorial uh, here in Maryland. Not only was Maryland the first uh, state, or the second state in the nation, rather, to make Dr. King's birthday a uh, state holiday, we built the first memorial to Dr. King. By the way, it's the only memorial to Dr. King in the state of Maryland. It exists on a campus called Anne Arundel Community College where the community uh, raised the money to be able to build this memorial, which was a $400,000 memorial. Again, it was grassroots. It was people working on a daily basis to make King's birthday a holiday. And the last thing I'd like to just share with your audience is people should never forget that when Dr. King was assassinated, uh, he was a victim of really two forms of assassination. The one, the physical one, is the one we remember so fondly, or not fondly, but we remember his assassination. But there was also the character assassination. And a recent movie on uh, Bayonet Rustin that came out sort of underlined what are some of the things that were being done to Dr. King to try to uh, to defame him. And that Jagger Hoover, which is a building is named after in Washington, D.C., that building is supposed to be moving to Prince George's County, the FBI building. Um, the FBI had a targeted program aimed at Dr. King and others. So I just think people need to really understand the value of this particular holiday. It's the one holiday in the nation that we don't advocate that people buy anything, look for Martin Luther King Jr. sales, but take the opportunity to educate their children and their grandchildren on who Dr. King really was and not be caught up in this notion that he was just some dreamer. He was far more than that. Jagger Hoover called him the most dangerous Negro in America. And remember when Jagger Hoover said that, Malcolm X was living. Black Panther Party was in existence. So-called more militant organizations were in existence. But it was the opinion of the FBI, Jagger Hoover, that of all of the leaders that existed at that time, Dr. King was the most dangerous Negro in America. People ought to pause and ask themselves, why did, Dr. Why did uh, Jagger Hoover say that? And I think you will understand why this particular holiday is so important. All right. We've got some folks who want to talk to you already, Carl. 800-450-7876. Bob's in Buffalo. He's on line three. Good morning, Bob. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for uh, that remembrance. Um, blessed King Memorial Weekend. Um, and as I reflect, um, I want to say something about Stevie before I miss it. Stevie before I miss it. There's a joke that Stevie can see uh, about how he moves around and how he creates, and that 
album Inner Vision shows that that sight is not always outward sight, can be an inner vision too. But I want to give a shout out to a brother who was a part of that circle, came in when they did The Crown, Gary Imhotep Bird, a Buffalo soldier, uh, a brother who did a piece called uh, If the People Only Knew the Power of the People. And that was before he became Imhotep Gary Bird. But uh, the power of the people to honor and and create and respect the holiday before it became a national or state holiday. Once the idea was put into the air that we need to honor Dr. King, people began in their own heart, in their own way to honor him by taking that day. I know when I was working, I used to work on that day, but everything I did on that day, I would try to be do it in such a way that if Dr. King was looking over my shoulder, he would be proud of me as I worked that day. Or sometimes I would just take the day and call it my own personal holiday to Dr. King because like another brother, Brother Bob Gore used to always say, we ain't free yet. It's, you know, we, we, we are, it's not time for us to celebrate. We have work to do. So uh, I just want to give a shout out to my high school classmate, Gary Bird. And if people can look up his tune that he did on his first album, it's the people only knew the power of the people. And I say that because there are many great heroes that we have, whether it's Marcus Garvey, or uh, many others, we don't have to wait for the nation to recognize them, for us to recognize them and give them their due and remember them. Uh, And like uh, Emilcar Cabral said, claim no easy victory and tell no lies. People need to know what it took to get the national holiday and understand that it wasn't an easy victory. And the idea of a holiday is not just to celebrate but to remember, and um, that I just wanted to call those those names out as All right. we uh, go through the celebration. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Bob. Uh, and let me ask Carl this. Carl, do you think in today's, because he talked about today's society, do you think it would have been possible to get a, a national holiday for Dr. King today? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think a lot more difficult. Um... We have a different breed of uh, elected officials, in my humble opinion, in this country. I'm old enough to remember when there were only 13 members of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, and they were a very unique group of people and did some incredible things. Today, I see so many efforts on people not wanting to be public servants, Carl, but many celebrities. You can run into uh, elected officials around the country. they got their own entourage. They've got their own... Uh, sort of uh, effort to build themselves as many celebrities. During the King era, there were people who were really committed to public service. And for them, what public service meant was not their own personal aggrandizement. They were less interested in the title and using that title to make America better. Those of us who live in Maryland will never forget Congressman Perrin Mitchell, who was the first African-American congressman 
from Maryland, and he had no problem stating the problem of racism. He once said, if you don't believe racism exists in America, you either dumbfounded or found it dumb. He was the kind of person that understood the role of black elected officials would improve the lives of their people. And I think all too often, too many of us have forgotten what that goal was, to improve the lives of our people versus getting in public office, getting a title, and believing that you've arrived. So, so what has happened, though, Carl? Because you, you mentioned the, the prior Congressional Black Caucus. Is, is it a generational difference that you're seeing here, how we confront issues that face us as a people, the lawmakers back when we got the King holiday passed and, and the ones that are in office today? One of the things that I, as you know, I'm part historian, so I look at this through the eyes of a historian. Most people have forgotten, really, they really have forgotten, that there was a concerted effort. I want to emphasize that, a concerted effort by the government. You've heard Republicans talk about the weaponizing of the Justice Department as if it's something new. The truth of the matter is the Justice Department, through the FBI, the CIA, and other government agencies, went after black leadership. Most people who are listening to this program have forgotten that the government, the government uh, spied on Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, that the government used the IRS to put King in jail. People have forgotten that part of history. So part of it is that many of us do not know the history that we've gone through in this country and continues to go through. If you were to do the following call, people would be shocked to hear this. If you were to Google right now, uh, IRS are three to five times more likely to audit black people. Most people have no idea that right now the federal government, if you're black and a taxpayer, you're three to five times more likely to be audited by the IRS. When people Google that, they're going to see articles in the Washington Post, uh, various other newspapers and television stations reporting on that. Is this that occurred when Congressman Perrin Mitchell was alive? The very first thing he would have done was held a, a meeting in his district, brought in black people, and told them what to do if they should get these letters. People listening to this program, when they, are, when they do this Google, they're going to find that the story that I just mentioned is true, and they're going to ask themselves, why is it that my elected official, black or white, has not sent me this letter? Why haven't they informed me that RS treats black people differently when it comes to auditing than anybody else? And if you recall, we're going to make up about 15% of this population. How is it possible that black people could be three to five times more likely to be audited? Answer, racism. Systemic racism. It's no different than it was when Dr. King walked the earth, except that during his time, the leaders were willing to confront that, call it out, and fight it. Today, too many people accept it. All right. I hold that thought right there, Carl. We've got to take another quick break. When we come back, though, uh, you mentioned the state of Maryland was the second state in the nation to make Dr. King's birthday a national, we'll make it a holiday. If, when we come back, if you can talk to us about that, was it Parent Mitchell? Who was behind the, the forces that were pushing that in the state of Maryland? Family, you want to join this conversation with Carl Snowden, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Free in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 4. 1450 WOL or information is power.
And good morning once again, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with Baltimore activist Carl Snowden discussing Maryland's role in supporting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Before we left, we were asking about the state of Maryland. Actually, it was the second state in the entire nation to make Dr. King's birthday a holiday. We're going to talk about that momentarily. Let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with uh, Professor and uh, journalist A. Peter Bailey as discussing Dr. King's relationship with Malcolm. And also before that, though, Reverend Willie Wilson will join us. He's going to discuss the Dr. King's relationship uh, relationship with the black church. And later this week, we're going to hear from uh, banking and financial expert Donnell Parker, uh, economist Dr. Julianne Malvo will join us. Also, Griot Babalamumba will be here, and along with chemitologist, our brother Tony Brad will join us as well. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, uh, uh, Carl, uh, the fact that Maryland came in second, as it came in second, as if it was a race, though, to make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday. Who was behind that? Do you remember some of the political forces behind that? Absolutely. As I mentioned to you, the sponsor of the bill was the then uh, late delegate Kenneth L. Webster. At the time of uh, this particular bill being introduced and passed, there were only 13 members, 13 members of what was called the Legislative Black Caucus. Uh, today, Maryland has more. Uh, African-Americans are part of the Legislative Black Caucus than any place in the nation. Uh, we have 60 African-American legislators, including the governor, the Speaker of the House, the treasurer uh, for the state of Maryland. We uh, have uh, uh, a large member, large uh, members of the caucus, the, the Legislative Black Caucus. So in terms of political power, we've got a lot of power in this particular state. When the bill was passed in 1974, there were only 13 members of the Legislative Black Caucus. Not a single uh, person in Anne Arundel County, which is where the state capital is, who are white, supported the bill. They were opposed to the bill when it was first introduced. It passed by a very narrow margin, but it did pass. And there were many, many people involved in helping to make this happen. I would give Perrin Mitchell first the credit as the congressman. But there were people out of Baltimore City, particularly churches, that rallied around this as well. There were a number of demonstrations that we had in Annapolis um, leading up to this particular bill being signed by Governor Marvin Mandel. There was a lot of energy. And remember, in order for people to appreciate this, they need to know a little bit of history. King had been murdered in 1968. Uh, Angela Davis was on, uh, had been arrested in the 70s and was on, literally on death penalty. They were going to put her to death. So the times were different. There was a huge amount of consciousness. There was a huge amount of energy that existed in the community. And I just don't want anybody to miss the point. That didn't just go away by accident. As I said in the previous segment, there was a concerted effort. People should just take the time to do the reading. There was a program called COINTELPRO, which is counterintelligence program. If people were to Google COINTELPRO, they would discover how the federal government, the FBI, was used to attack black leadership. I myself was a young victim of that. I'm one of the few people in the nation that sued the FBI successfully for illegally spying on me. Um, the documents speak for themselves, what the FBI was doing at that time. So I think it's very, very important for people to understand that this holiday wasn't given to us. A lot of sweat, literally blood and tears went into making this holiday a uh, national holiday. And there are a lot of people 
who should be certainly recognized for it. Stevie Wonder was brilliant. What was not said in the previous uh, segment that needs to be said is happy birthday wasn't a song. It became a national anthem for black people. We used that to rally people all over the country. It energized, mobilized, and helped us to organize this successful effort. Yeah, and let me jump in here because you mentioned earlier that uh, Dr. King was under surveillance by the federal government, and, and that, you know, under the auspices of, of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. And you also mentioned that you were uh, also being investigated by the feds, and but, and you actually sued. Going, take us back to King's day, uh, King and, and, and Brother Malcolm. Do you think they understood that they were under surveillance, that COINTELPRO was at work? And we can throw in, of course, we can throw, uh, Chairman Fred Hampton as well. Do you think those brothers out there at that time knew that this, the, their government, people are supposed to represent them, was spying on them? When you talk to journalist uh, Peter Bailey later today, he will tell you about the story of Malcolm Martin Luther King Jr. meeting for the first time in 1964. They met in Washington, D.C., it was, it was not by design, it was by accident. Dr. King was there to push for the 1964 Civil Rights Bill being passed in the Congress, and they happened to bump into each other. You see this famous photo of Dr. King and Malcolm X smiling. This is Malcolm X before he left the Nation of Islam. He was still a member of the Nation of Islam at the time. So he bumps into uh, Dr. King, and Dr. King says to Malcolm, how you doing, Malcolm? And Malcolm says to Dr. King, we've got a lot in common. And again, Dr. King said, Malcolm, I don't know what you mean. What do you mean we have a lot in common? Malcolm X said to Dr. King, we're both dead men. Only I know it and you don't. And obviously, uh, a year later, Malcolm's dead. And four years later, Malcolm X is dead. No, I think they very much understood the times in which they lived. Um, when Dr. King died, he was 39 years old. But when they did an autopsy on his body, it was a body of a heart of, he had a heart of a 60-year-old man. Dr. King was under extreme stress. People have no appreciation for what he went through uh, during this particular period of time. In 1964, uh, J. Hoover decided that King had to go. And the kinds of things that they did to Dr. King is just unbelievable, unbelievable. And the records are sealed to this very day. They're supposed to be released in 2050. Um, but what it will reveal is the kind of tactics they used against Dr. King. Uh, in fact, there's this famous story about how they attempted to have Dr. King, and by the way, Malcolm X, to commit suicide. People find that very, very difficult to believe. But again, if you do your research, you will discover that the government, through the FBI, was attempting to get Martin Luther King Jr. to commit suicide. Now, one would wonder, no, how could that be possible? The reason they were able to do it, they used something called the National Security Agency, which is a super secret agency that exists in Maryland that does a psychological profiles on friends and families and foes and enemies. And it was in that time in 1964, it was illegal for the NSA to spy on American citizens. Notwithstanding that, they opened up this file on Dr. King. And what they discovered was when Dr. King was eight years old, his maternal grandmother died. And Dr. King as a young boy attempted to jump out a two-story window. And the FBI figured if you put enough pressure on Dr. King, he would commit suicide. And again, if people just Google it, um, they'll find that the FBI did send to Dr. King a letter in 1964, weeks before he was to get the Nobel Peace Prize, to try to get him to commit suicide. 
by revealing to him that they were aware of some personal things in his personal life um, and that they were going to reveal that in 1964. And they were hoping that that would be enough to have Dr. King commit suicide. Wow, what a story. 13 away from the top there. But the, the feds also came after you. You certainly yes. weren't Dr. King or, or Malcolm. Why do you think they came after you? What, what were you doing that, that interested them so much? Well, this was a national program. Um, the COINTELPRO was not just limited to activists at the national level, but they were trying to identify early on activists throughout the nation. And you go back and look at COINTELPRO, there were tens of thousands of people who were put in, uh, who received dossiers on the FBI. I just happened to be one of those, but there were thousands of people. And essentially at that time, if you were outspoken, if you were moving to be part of what was called the Black Liberation Movement, you were identified as uh, subversive. And your name wound up in a file, and next thing you know, you had this FBI file. I tell people all the time, if you really want to get a feel for what the government can and have done, uh, I was successful in getting my FBI file. So one of the first things I did call was turn the entire FBI file over to the ACLU of Maryland. So anybody who wanted to see what the government was doing to, and I was a young activist. I was only 16 years old at the time when they opened the file up on me. Uh, you can literally go to the ACLU website, put my name in it, and you'll see the file that the FBI uh, opened up on me in the 70s and what their focus were. Uh, <clears throat> so it was not that you had to be on the national level. There were a lot of people who were subject to being uh, having a dossier created for them if they were politically active in this country. And well, way, how did they? Let me jump here and ask you this, though. At ten away from the top, how did you find out that they even had a dossier on you? What was it? Was somebody tip you off, or you had the? Was it a feeling that you you thought the feds were following you? How did you come to that conclusion? Um, <clears throat> I went to a lecture one day at St. John's College, which is one of the oldest colleges in the nation existed in Annapolis, Maryland. And the speaker was a guy named Ralph Nader, who is a nationally known uh, advocate or activist. And a law had just been passed. As a result of Watergate, uh, they passed a reform. It's called the Freedom Information Act. And what Ralph Nader told us as a group, if you were active in the community, uh, the FBI probably had a file on you. So almost as a lock, I sent a letter to the FBI under the Freedom Information Act and requested a copy of my file. And to my astonishment, I got back a letter saying the file was not available to you because of various sections of the law they cited. Um, and we eventually had to go to federal district court to bring a lawsuit against him. But that's how I initially found out, thanks to Ralph Nader. It was, did you, so you actually saw your file. Was there anything in there that was inaccurate or was everything in there truthful? No, they had a lot of stuff that was inaccurate. But one of the things I quickly learned was uh, how they develop informants, who the informants were. Uh, there were certain things in it that uh, allowed me to be able to determine who the informants were. They didn't have the informant's name in it. But because of certain circumstances, I was able to determine. And a couple people admitted that they had been interviewed by the FBI. I went to a private school called the Key School, which is in Annapolis. And my my teachers, my professors, fellow students were interviewed by the FBI. They even interviewed my mother, by the way. My mother lived to be 104 years old, but they interviewed my mother and told her not to say anything to me regarding the, uh, the interview they did with her. Wow. 
did she ever tell you though? I mean, if, if it's my child in the FBI, I say, hey, the feds are asking questions about you. Even if it's a friend, I'll, I'll let them know. Not All these people in the feds. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Not only did my mother tell me, Carl. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, my, good to hear uh, My mother was one of my greatest uh, supporters. Um, I remember her fondly. Now, she was very much a supporter and very much allowed me to know what the FBI was doing. And um, the more I've learned about this particular period of history and the more I've looked back uh, on it, understand that this was not an aberration. There are a lot of people who are associated with what was called the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Liberation Movement, the Black Consciousness Movement. And you look at the numbers of lives of people who were destroyed. I mean, I, I don't think we appreciate enough the sacrifices that people make. While Dr. King certainly is this larger-than-life figure, he was not the only person. I often tell people this story, and it's so important that we control the narrative. I had the great pleasure of meeting Rosa Parks um, in the 80s. When Rosa Parks started, when she was arrested in 1955, she was 42 years old. I would later meet her when she was 84 years old. As you know, she died at 95. I met her in Annapolis for a black history program. And she was telling the story about her arrest. And after she finished the story, which most people thought they'd heard that story over and over again, a reporter who happened to be white said to Mrs. Parks, Mrs. Parks, why did you refuse to give up your seat to a white man in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama? And the answer she gave us, I will never forget. And it underscores the importance of controlling the narrative. Mrs. Parks said to the, young, to, the, to the reporter, sir, I did not refuse to give up my seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. I refused to give up my dignity. Wow. It's a different interpretation of that history and that period. It was bigger than giving up your seat to a white man. It was much larger than that. And she refused to have people define that act of defiance with her refusal to give up her seat to a white man. It had more to do with her dignity. And in fact, it was Dr. King who would later say after her arrest, Sister Rosa, it is better that we walk in dignity than ride in shame. Wow, what a story. Thank you for sharing that with us. We're going to take another quick break at six away from the top of the hour. Just joining us, Carl Snowden's with us. He's an activist in Baltimore discussing Maryland's role in supporting Dr. King and Dr. King's holiday. What are your thoughts, family? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. The DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Good morning once again, family. Minute after the top there, I'm going to tell you, I'm speaking with Reverend Willie Wilson. We're right now with activist Carl Snowden. we got some folks who want to speak with Carl. Uh, Sister Fahima is on line one, calling from the district. Good morning, Sister Fahima. You're on with uh, Carl Snowden. Good morning, Mr. Nelson. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Greetings to you and happy King's Day to your guests. Two things I wanted to um, share very briefly. 
Um, actually, they're going to release MLK's um, files in 2027. I remember hearing that it was 50-something, but it's going to be 2027. I don't know if they changed the date or what. The other thing I want to share, and I'm not going to go into too much details, but I had a family member who is now deceased where there was an attempt to recruit this family member to be an FBI informant. And apparently this family member had applied uh, to the FBI for a job when they were in high school. So years later, um, they called this person down, supposedly under the pretext of a job interview, and they were attempting to recruit this person in my family to become an FBI informant. And, of course, that person declined, but they had photographs of people in my family. I apparently was in high school um, when um, they were recruiting this person, and they had recordings between um, this person and other family members. But the bizarre thing that really freaked me out, you know, this she told me 25, this person told me 25 years later, and like in the 90s, and obviously this was like in the 70s when they were attempting to recruit this person. And anyway, this is before cell phones. So anyway, I went over to this family member's house for Thanksgiving dinner, and she had told, this person had told me the night before, and when I came home, um, there was a card under my door from the FBI. And, of course, I freaked out. And, you know, I, I was just like, I just completely freaked out. And I believe that was the way to say that they were still listening. Wow. Thanks, Sister Fahima. Carl? It scared, it scared the hell out of me. And it was designed to do that. Um, <clears throat> they know that. If you can put fear in people, they do all kinds of things that's not in their best interest. And your experience is not limited. I mean, you'd be surprised the number of people all around the nation who uh, they were able to recruit into becoming an informant. And just for your listening audience and for yourself, you may not even realize this, but the first black FBI agent wasn't hired in the 60s or 70s, as you might think. The first black FBI agent was hired in the 20s. To infiltrate, mm. to infiltrate, uh, Marcus Garvey movement. He got a, He was given a. He was hired by them for that purpose. He served the purpose that they hired him for, and he got a medal for it. Mm. So our struggle dealing with civil rights and the whole liberation movement is an ongoing one. And I happen to know Washington D.C. very, very well. I know Marion Barry. I know the efforts that were done in D.C. where you happen to live. Remember, that's where the FBI headquarters existed. I know the efforts to entrap Stokely Carmichael and others at that time who lived in uh, D.C. You have a very famous... Well, let me jump in here and ask you this, because we're racing the... Can I make another quick point? Yeah, go ahead, Susan Fahim. Okay, people were celebrating the movie Klansman that Spike Lee did that starred um, Denzel Washington's son, but that guy, he was, in, he was obviously being created, recruited to be a boss bureau of special services to spy on civil rights groups. And people were celebrating this movie, Klansman, because he had a, co- a conversation with the Klan. But this guy, obviously, and it was based upon a real book, was recruited to spy on civil rights groups during that era. And I'll just hang up and listen. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Let me ask Carl this, though, because you mentioned Dr. King found out he was under surveillance. 
Was you mentioned that would scare anybody? Like Sister Fahima mentioned, was he concerned when knowing that oh, he was on a surveillance? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I'll do this real quick, Carl, just to give people some appreciation of this. Remember, the year is 1964. People have to remember the time, the technology that existed in 1964. It's far different today. You can do things today that you couldn't do in 64. But in 1964, in order to get Martin Luther King Jr. to be solid, they sent his wife and him a recording of him being involved with another woman, which was not his wife in 1964. And appreciate this time, 1964, this is a year after Dr. King had reached his national prominence, having given his famous I Have a Dream speech. He is a Baptist preacher. Many of his law followers called him the Lord or the Moses of his people. He was put on this huge pedestal. And suddenly he gets in the mail information that only the FBI could have recorded, showing him having an inappropriate relationship with a woman. And you got to remember, in 1964, what that would have meant. It would have been a huge scandal. It was an effort, again, to defame him. And he and his advisors tried to figure out, they knew it came from the FBI, but what could they do about it? And as they started talking about various ways of trying to get the FBI to back up, Dr. King went into a room all by himself. And when he came out of the room, while his his supporters were trying to figure out what to do, Dr. King said he'd made up his mind what to do. And it was at that point, Dr. King, in my opinion, lost the fear of death. Dr. King understood at that point, 1964, that his life was at risk. And if you just go back and listen to many of his speeches during that time, he's making reference to death all the time. Most people think that his uh, I've been to the mountaintop speech was the first time he made reference to his own demise. It is not. And he even talks about his own imperfections. Most people do not know the true history of the civil rights movement. And that's why I argue that it's important for us, those who lived it, those who understand it, to put it in perspective. Because you do not, others will rewrite the history. Others will not tell you what I'm about to tell you. When Dr. King was assassinated, most people don't know this. His approval rating was the lowest it had ever been not just among white people, but black people. There were black people that were upset with Dr. King in 1968 when he was advocating nonviolence, when the movement had become much more militant. So, again, I just think that we need to make sure that our children and our grandchildren understand who Dr. King was. And so today at 12 noon in Annapolis, Maryland, at Annapolis Police Department, we're going to have a tribute to Dr. King. The Prince Hall Masons will be a part of this, the NAACP, the Caucus of African-American Leaders, the National Organization of Black, National Coalition of Black, 100 Black Women, and other groups coming together in Annapolis, the state capitol, at Annapolis Police Department. Because what we need to understand is that when Dr. King was assassinated, that was called gun violence. Well, the gun violence has not ceased. It continues. Think of Trevor Martin, 17 years old, Michael Brown, 18 years old, Antoine Black, 19 years old. And the list just goes on and on and on of people who've died at the hands of gunfire. So we're meeting today at 12 noon to pay tribute to Dr. King, but to also make it crystal clear that the struggle continues. And we as a community need to be able to respond to what's happening today. I end on this note with you, Brother Carl. There's a speech that most people have not heard. They just haven't. They know about the I Have a Dream speech. But the speech I'm about to tell you about, and people should do it, was given six years before Martin Luther King Jr. 
our famous I Have a Dream speech. It was given the same location that speech was given, except the title of that speech was Give Us the Ballot. Give Us the Ballot. And I argue that if you look at that speech in 1957, Give Us the Ballot, it is more relevant today than the speech I Have a Dream. Give Us a Ballot gives us a clear path. If you get the ballot, how to use that ballot in a way to improve the lives of our people. And the vast majority of people listening to this have never even heard of the speech, Give Us the Ballot, given in 1957, May 17th, 1957, at the Lincoln Memorial with Dr. King spoke. All right. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for sharing all this information with us this morning. Thank you, sir. All right, Carl Snowden is an activist in Baltimore. Ten after the top of the hour, turn attention out to Reverend Willie Wilson. Reverend Wilson, good morning. Good morning. How you doing, Carl? Excellent, uh, Reverend Wilson. You heard that, that Carl Snowden was talking about. He's an activist out of Baltimore, and he was saying that not many people supported Dr. King, even members of the black church, because, you know, some people think that everybody, the, the black clergy, were all 100% in lockstep with Dr. King. True or false? Well, that, that, that is absolutely true. You know, during that era, um, many of this is the reason that the Progressive National Baptist Convention came into existence. The president and many of his followers of the National Baptist Convention believed that uh, the way to freedom and equality was just to trust God and believe in God, that kind of thing. And Martin and others uh, were pushing to make civil rights the primary platform of the National Baptist Convention. They refused to do so. Later on, J.H. Jackson, who was the president of the National Baptist Convention for many, many years, disliked Martin's uh, philosophy and what he did and was doing so much that when uh, the street was named in Chicago, Martin Luther King Avenue or Boulevard, whichever it was, this pastor whose church entrance was on that street changed the entrance of the church to the other side of the church, which would be on another street, so that his entrance to his church would not be on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. And, of course, there were many, many other pastors. Uh, Martin was not embraced by the majority of black pastors by a long shot during uh, the time that he lived. Well, I got to ask you this. Was that jealousy or what? How do you see that? Well, it was more brainwashing than it was jealousy. I think jealousy may have been a small part of it, but the bigger part was the brainwashing that had existed for about 400 years with regards to Christianity and the the reinterpretation by the European, by the oppressor, of a religion that was originally African religion uh, that started, was born in Africa, taken to Europe, and then brought to America to the colonies and very much a part of that teaching was to teach us that God's going to take care of everything, just uh, trust God, and when you die, you're going to go to heaven, and you're going to have a wonderful life, but don't even worry about what's going on and what's happening to you under the subjugation and oppression that you're experiencing right here on the earth. And so it was a good deal a part of that, the, 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 the idea that God will take care of everything in God's own time, that kind of theology, uh, which was the kind of theology that we were trained in and programmed to accept and believe in uh, as a part of the Christian faith. 
All right, 13 at the top of the hour, Rev. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we continue our discussion on Dr. King and Dr. King with the black church. What was his relationship with the black church, folks? What are your thoughts? 800-450-7876. You two can join this discussion. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, the Reverend Willie Wilson. Some of you know him from Union Temple Baptist Church. We're here on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday's holiday, a national federal holiday. So we're discussing this morning, Dr. King, uh, Dr. King actually. And Reverend Wilson is ex- ex- helping us explain Dr. King's uh, bond with the black church, with the black clergy. So Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Wilson, as you mentioned, the many of the black, well, many, but some of the black clergy were not supportive of Dr. King. Did they give reasons why? Why they weren't supportive? Well, I, I, as I said before, Reverend J. Jackson, who was the president of the National Baptist Convention, his basic position was that uh, the civil rights movement, protests, and the like, was not the way to attain freedom, justice, and equality in America. He, he was hardline in his belief, which, of course, was the, the mentality that came down from slavery that was taught to us, that was ingrained in us as a people, that God is going to take care of everything. Don't don't get involved in anything other than getting your soul saved and going to heaven. And so that was the biggest uh, gap between what Dr. Ting was espousing in terms of the civil rights movement and the majority, should I say, of black pastors at that time. Was it a regional thing? Because, you know, Dr. King was from the South and from Atlanta. And, and you mentioned the, the preacher in, in Chicago, what he did. He changed the entrance to his church when the, the street was named uh, Dr., uh, Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. Street. It, was it a regional thing? Or was he uppity or so-called bougie? Uh, I hate to use those terms. Uh, preachers who thought they were better than Dr. King because he was a Southern dude. I don't think it was that as much. Again, I say it was more the theology and and what uh, Martin Luther King's theology was quite different, uh, having had the uh, same teachers and mentors that I was exposed to. His theology was quite different. Uh, Long before there was a James Cone, there was the Mordecai Johnson, the first black president of Howard University, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, who became the president of Morehouse, and Dr. Howard Thurman. All three of them developed a liberation theology way back in the late, uh, early 1940s. And, of course, as you may know, most of the HBCUs, uh, of course, there are over, over 200 of them, were started by the American Missionary Association and the Freedmen's Bureau. And the uh, primary purpose was to train black preachers. Howard University was established to train black preachers to carry forth this message to civilize uh, former slaves and give them uh, a Christian education. Um, uh, That Christian education was, of course, the reinterpretation of an original African religion that was co-opted by Christianity and made into a religion which became the guarantor of the rights of the oppressor over the oppressed, contrary to what that original teaching was in the teachings of Jesus, 
which was to liberate the oppressed. And, and Dr. King's philosophy, where did he get that from? McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. He got that from those mentors. Uh... Benjamin E. Mays, uh, Howard Thurman, Mordecai Johnson. I, I can tell you a story. In uh, Shortly after Martin became the pastor of uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, uh, Mordecai Johnson, who was the first black president of Howard, wrote uh, Martin a letter and told him, I want you to come up to Howard, and I want you to, to be uh, the next dean of uh, this, the, the divinity school, with an eye towards becoming the next president of Howard University. Martin told him, well, you know, I just took this church. I'm very flattered by the offer and the opportunity, but I want to stay here because I just took this church. So then they said, uh, come on up and preach then at the chapel. This is 1956. Martin came up and he preached. And they unofficially at that time uh, uh anointed him as the uh, carrier of this liberation message. They had previously gone to most of the HBCUs, given the fact that most black men could go to college for only one of two reasons, either to be a preacher or a teacher. So they thought, well, then that's the perfect place for us to go and teach this new theology, which they called the Jesus Theory, uh, which which basically indicated what James Cone said some years later. It was a religion uh, to liberate the oppressed. And uh, and so Martin knew that as well as a lot of other knowledge. Martin's first cousin, Randall C. Osborne, uh, came up to Howard. I spoke up at Howard University back in the 1980s. And when I finished, because I know that Martin knew that Martin had been exposed to some of the t- same teachings that I had, via uh, Howard Thurman and Benjamin E. Mays and, and the like, Mordecai Johnson. Um, uh, uh, when I finished speaking, uh, Martin's first cousin, Randall T. Osborne, who was at that time the head of the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolent Change, when I finished speaking, Randall T. Osborne came up to me and said, you know, Martin did a speech just like that uh, in 1956, I think he said, uh, and I, 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 I said, he did. He said, yeah. I said, well, I sure would like to see it. He said, no problem. When I go back to Atlanta, I will send it, a copy of it to you so you can see it. Of course, Martin, he, uh, Randall T. Osborne came down with cancer, and he died, and I never got to see it. But, uh, of course, I came upon a lot of Martin's writings that most of us, and I say most of us, know nothing about uh, that he wrote while he was a student at Crozier Theological Seminary uh, in 1948 and 49 and 1950, where he traced the African origin of Christianity. And, of course, his professor said, well, no, Martin, don't say that, don't say that, even though Martin had documented it quite clearly in those papers, talking about, and I quote, 
he talked about the striking resemblance between the developing Christian church and African religions cannot be denied. And he went on to talk about Isis and Osiris and Horus. He went on to talk about Mithraism and all these African religions that had a profound impact. And in fact, that Martin went on to say, obviously, were copied and borrowed from these African religions to create a new religion, which we know today as Christianity. And what I'm saying to you is that Martin was a revolutionary of the first kind. And, of course, uh, because of that, he could not come out altogether. The same reason that Jesus was crucified, if we go by that story, is the same reason that Martin was crucified because he went against the established religion of his day and against government policies that were oppressing the masses of people. That's the message. He was not a dreamer. He was a revolutionary. And uh, when he ultimately got to the point where he could not hold it any further, most of us know the story when he was at the apartment in New York a few months before he was assassinated and he was in Harry Belafonte's apartment, Belafonte looked at him and he said, Martin had a very strange look on his face. He said, Martin, what's wrong? Martin said, I think I've come upon something that greatly disturbs me. Harry Belafonte said, well, what is that? He said, I think I have been leading my people into a burning house. Now, that's a gambling term. Gambling term which means that uh, you're doing something that uh, uh, you can't win at. You keep gambling, you keep losing. And so he had come to that conclusion that uh, this whole notion of trying to uh, live peacefully with a people who had done everything imaginable to destroy our people was just not working. It was an exercise in futility, which is what a burning house means. And so uh, shortly after that, as you know, he was assassinated. So this whole notion of Dr. King being a dreamer is one of the biggest lies that ever been been told, and it's been a way to uh, keep people from knowing the true uh, message of Martin Luther King Jr., what Martin Luther King Jr. was really all about, and uh, uh, so that even today, with all the little activities that are going on, they don't scratch the surface in terms of speaking to who Martin Luther King Jr. really was. All right. Thank you for sharing that story with us. 30 after the top of the hour. Reverend Wilson, uh, liberation theology. Can you can you explain what that is for our audience? Because you mentioned that Dr. King knew about Isis, Horus, and all of that, our ancient Egyptian uh, gods that we had. We never preached them, as far as I know of. Did he ever talk about them in his sermons? Well, not in his sermons that I know of. Of course, you got to realize they assassinated him for uh, even approaching getting to the roots of what he knew. Uh, so, in fact, his teachers, his mentors, uh, Howard Thurman, Benjamin Mays, and Mordecai Johnson, all three of them uh, recognized they couldn't come out all out. They had two different messages. When they talked to black audiences, it was one message. When they talked to other mess audiences, it was a, another message. Uh, when Martin knew clearly, when he wrote these papers in 1948, 49, and 50, 
uh, his, 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 his professors at Crozier said, one, please don't say that. He said, they said, uh, his professor said, well, don't say that they copied and borrowed from African religion. He said, uh, they, because all these religions existed, it was kind of a, a unconscious kind of thing. Whether it was unconscious or not, it's the same reality. They got it from African religion, and they took that African religion. So it was that religion that Martin talked about. He talked about the great contrast and comparisons between Mithraism and between the Egyptian religion of Osiris and Isis. He actually wrote about this, but he never spoke about that because, as did his mentors, mentors he knew that that would be his end very quickly. And so he never, uh, this is something of what Randall T. Osborne was saying to me when I had spoken up at Howard University uh, on that particular occasion. He said, he, he let me know that Martin uh, knew. And that's when I began to research. I began to find these papers that Martin had written, uh, one of which is the influence of the mystery religions on Christianity where he pointedly says it cannot be denied that uh, Christianity in its early development copied from and borrowed from these African religions. And, of course, uh, not knowing that as well, not knowing that uh, the reason, the true reason that Martin was assassinated it was because of his opposition to the established religion of his time and the government uh, of his time, just as as Jesus was assassinated many years before. All right, hold that thought. When we come back, we'll talk about that assassination. You're saying it was because of religious reasons. Some people say because his, his objection to the Vietnam War, and some say it was because he started talking about economics. Which is it? Why don't I get your that. thoughts when we get back, mm-hmm. Reverend Wilson? Uh, 26 <laughs> minutes away from the top of the hour. Reverend Willie Wilson's our guest family as we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthdays. Right there, here today, this morning, you got a question or comment, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL or information is power. And good morning again, family. Happy King Day for you. Today is the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a federal holiday and our guest is Reverend Willie Wilson. Before we go back to him, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to speak with a professor and journalist, A. Peter Bailey. Uh, you know, many of you know Peter was one of the last persons to speak with uh, Brother Malcolm. Well, he's going to talk about Dr. King's relationship with Malcolm X. And later this week, you're going to hear from a banking and financial expert, uh, Darnell Parker, economist Dr. Julian Malvo will join us. Griot Baba Lamuma from the uh, Emoja House in the district will be here. Also, chemitologist Tony Browder will all join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010WOLB if you're in the DMV run FM 95.9 and also AM 1450 WOL. So Reverend Wilson, your, your thoughts on why Dr. King was assassinated? Was it because he started talking about the economy? Was it because he was speaking against the war? Or was it because his, his issues on theology? He was talking about all of that. And as I said before, this was the reason he was, he was assassinated for blasphemy against the religion of his day. And as much as blasphemy means that you are going against what they are teaching and doing, uh, it's interesting how history repeats itself. The established religion of that day was exploiting the people the same way 
unfortunately, that many clergy are doing even today. They were selling blessings in the temple. That's why Jesus went into the temple with a whip and whipped them out. You know, when you made a sacrifice of an animal, you were supposed to go out into the wild and catch your own animal. So what these uh, Sadducees religious people were doing, they were saying, look, we got them right here in cages in the temple. You don't have to go out and make no sacrifice. We're selling them right here. So they were selling blessings, just like, unfortunately, in many of our churches today, they are selling blessings. Get in the line and give $1,000, and God's going to bless you with this and with that. So, you know, it was that that, my, that Jesus was going against, uh, the religion of his day. And, and when you look at what the, the feud between Reverend J.H. Jackson and Martin Luther King, Jr., and Jackson's cohorts, it was all about their theology. It was about uh, not believing that civil rights movements of marching and demonstrating was godly, uh, whereas King saw that it was because he was doing the exact kind of thing that Jesus did in his day. So it was about economics. It was about uh, people getting sacrifices and the church robbing them of their money. Uh, it was about uh, the government, uh, Martin's case, the war, and in, in, in Jesus' case, uh, the government taxing people uh, who could not afford it, uh, paying render to Caesar what was due unto Caesar. So it was all of those things. Martin was killed because of the government policies on the war, because of economic policies, of our people not be given education and job opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which definitely was economics. Uh, so it was a combination of all those factors. You mentioned earlier at 19 away from the top of the hour that uh, Dr. King struggled with the, the fact that he knew that the, the Christianity was born out of, uh, you know, the, the issues that were taught by our ancient African scholars. And he has, he's struggling whether he should tell his congregation that. Do you think that today as we speak in 2024 that you have pastors who, who know that the history of, of uh, Christianity or religion really started in Africa are still struggling with those issues today? Is that something that's sort of taboo for preachers to talk about to their congregation? It's not taboo. It's fear. You know, uh, the fear of death. When you see that every time that our people have stood up, our great leaders, uh, be it uh, physical death, be it economic death, be it social or political death, uh, they are destroyed. And, of course, that fear is so deep. So many of our preachers are so afraid. Yes, there are some who do know uh, the our African origin of Christianity, but they're not going to say it. They're not going to say it for the fear of the oppressor and also from the fear of, of, of that bag, you know, uh, if they if they fear that their congregation is not going to accept it and they're not going to get paid, you know, they're not going to do it. And so it, it's, it's both of those things uh, that, uh, but I think the bigger is the fear of the oppressor, which was ingrained in us over 400 years, and that fear still prevails. Uh, and until we overcome that fear, uh, many of us will never say anything of substance to, to correct the ills that affect and afflict our people. And speaking of that fear, uh, 17 away from the top, yeah, Fred Price, Reverend Fred Price, the late Fred Price of Crenshaw Christian Center, um, you know the story. He started to preach about race, and he lost mm -hmm. half of his uh, congregation. 
is is was that is that the fear that you know when preach other preachers saw that and they heard about that and i'm sure they all of them heard about that because no one is i the, my, from my knowledge i don't know has picked up the, the mantle and started preaching from the pulpit about about racism is that the well, fear you know that what? go ahead yeah it is that's that's part of the fear is losing your congregation uh, because they too have been brainwashed, you know, and they believe certain things, and uh, you have to you have to face that. If you if you cannot overcome that fear, you know, you will never you'll never say what you need what you know or what needs to be said. What is interesting about Fred Price was that, uh, you know, he was teaching that same stuff, you know, that so many of our preachers are teaching and. Uh, uh, particularly for in his case, the whole prosperity theology thing, and he was fine at that, making millions of dollars until his son, his black son, tried to date uh, the daughter of one of the white preachers that was one of his uh, fellow preachers. And when that happened, that white preacher let him know, oh no, no way, that's gonna happen. And that's that's what turned him sour. And all of a sudden, he could see what he had not seen all along or refused to see all along, how prevalent and powerful racism is. And that's when Fred Price started preaching about racism uh, and not before. All along, he was fine. Everything was wonderful until his son tried to date this white pastor's daughter, and the white pastor said, no, that's taboo. He can't do that. And his son is now the preacher over there at Christ, uh, Crenshaw Christian Center. Same son that, that started all that, as you mentioned, Reverend, Reverend Wilson. But let me ask you this. How can a preacher be afraid, though? I thought if you were, if you believe in God, that, uh, how can God and fear occupy the same space? Well, you know what? That's part of the theology that Dr. Martin Luther King was exposed to and that I'm exposed to. They came out of ancient black chemists. And major black climate, most of us know the greatness of black Egypt, but we don't know the singular cause of that greatness. The singular cause was that the priests of ancient black Egypt taught uh, the people to say these two words, Anuk Asar, I am divine, I am God, a God, not with a capital G, but with a small g. Having been made in the likeness of God, we share in the attributes of God. And so that critical point uh, of seeing God as somewhere up in the sky as opposed to God being within you, you know, Howard Thurman, the great mentor and teacher of mine who also greatly influenced Martin Luther King Jr., uh, he said the answer to the problem of our people is one simple formula. It recognized that the kingdom of God is within you which is exactly what was taught in ancient black Egypt, uh, uh, which made that civilization the greatest civilization to ever grace this planet. When you believe, as opposed to believing you are the N-word, believe that you are a god. And Martin was clear on that. That's what gave him his fearlessness. That's what gave him his power, his awareness that God was within him. Uh, he had learned that lesson well. You know, the, the the most popular book to me and the most important book to me of Howard Thurman was the book titled Jesus and the Disinherited. And it's uh, recorded that this book Martin Luther King kept with him at all times in his briefcase all the way up to the day he was assassinated in his briefcase was a copy of Howard Thurman's book 
Jesus and the disinherited, where he posited two questions. Is there some inherent weakness in this religion called Christianity? Or has there been a betrayal of the genius, the true message of Jesus? And, of course, it is that understanding that Martin was able to grasp, uh, as well as myself and some others, that gives you the, quote, I would say, uh, the holy boldness to stand up and speak truth to power. Right. At uh, 12 away from the top, and I've been to your church, Union Temple, and I've seen what you have on, on the walls uh, inside inside the church, and you can tell it's a black church. Do you get any pushback from white pastors? Do, I'm sure you've had white pastors come to your church when you were there on, on a daily basis. But did you ever get pushback when they saw these black faces uh, in your church? No, quite to the contrary. In fact, many of them knew more of the images on that mural than our own people. When they came in, they would know, for the most part, they might not know one or two. And they said, well, who is this one right here? I know this. I know this is Booker T. I know this is W.B. Du Bois. I know this is uh, Malcolm X, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But who is, and generally, most of the time, it would be Marcus Garvey that they didn't recognize. And that's the, that's the sadness of it all is that often those who have been part of the oppression of our people know more about our own history than we ourselves know. So, no, I've never had any negative. Uh, in fact, I've had some who've been working on their uh, doctoral studies to come and ask could they sit in and listen to some of my messages and uh, find out more about the mural and how did I do it and why did I do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, no, I haven't had that kind of uh, opposition. Greatest opposition I've had from my own people. I had one pastor right here in this city. He came one Sunday morning, and he said to me, he said, how does it feel? He said, most of the time, when someone is a pioneer, uh, long after they are gone is when people realize that they were speaking the truth. He said, you've had this mural up, and I must admit that I'm one who hated you because you had this mural of a black Christ and these 12 disciples that significant African and African-American people. Uh, and he said, how does it feel that you did this and you still alive while this has been done? I said, well, I'm just glad you finally caught up. And then he asked, he said, well, can I go out and apologize to you in front of your congregation? Because I was one who hated you, as many others have. And, and in fact, I said, sure. So he went out and he apologized in front of the entire congregation to me for hating me or putting up that mural. Wow. Hate is a strong word. It's hard for yeah. me to believe a, a man of the cloth is, uh, uses the term that he hates somebody. That's, it just doesn't seem, just doesn't add up. <laughs> the math isn't right, as they say these days. But anyway, we got somebody want to talk to you, uh, Reverend Wilson. Ten away from the top there. Brother Haki's joined us from Baltimore. Good morning, Brother Haki. Yes, uh, good morning, Brother Carl. Good morning to you, Reverend Wilson. How you doing today? Good morning. How you doing? Good, good, good. Uh, so uh, earlier you, you said it well when when you were you both were talking about how some of the the black churches were not receptive, um, uh, and I, I I mean I was aware of Bayard Rustin before the uh, this uh, Netflix documentary. Well, I guess it was a movie uh, came out, but 
Was there any, I mean, like on the ground influence that he had that many churches were aware of, to your knowledge, that would make, uh, that made some of the churches at that time uh, stay away from Dr. King? Because, um, you know, I'm as I watched the documentary, and I, my understanding, people in the movement, well, Dr. King respected Bayard Rustin's intellectual um, uh, wisdom or experience as an older uh, brother, but uh, but also his nonviolence. My understanding that that is was part of what, uh, and perhaps Dr. King may have had his own philosophy about that, but uh, that Bayard Rustin really pushed that. So, could you speak to you know his uh, you know sexual uh, bisexual homosexuality and did the, any churches were aware and did that keep anyone away and I'll just take it off air. Thank you, Carl. Well, well, I, I don't know a lot about that. The movie certainly suggests that, you know, uh, which is one, if you, wa- you watch the movie, you saw that they had uh, King and some of his cohorts had a meeting to address that and, 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 and had, uh, and, and some wanted him to be Put out of the movement altogether, be it Rustin that is, and then other than they finally settled on, well, you just have to be more low key with that, you know, and not uh, be open with that. You got to consider the time period uh, that this occurred. Clearly, it wasn't like it is now, which is much more open and acceptable, accepting rather, should I say? Uh, but then, when that era, it was. Uh, uh, a difficult thing to do uh, and to accept and to deal with. All right, six away from the top of that, Reverend Wilson. We got to take a short break here. We'll be back in four minutes. It's six away, as I mentioned, for the top of the app. We'll be back right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family, and happy King Day. It's uh, Dr. King's birthday. Had he lived, he would be 95 years old today. We're discussing his relationship, his bond with the black church. And Reverend Willie Wilson from Union Temple Baptist Church in, in Washington, D.C., is sort of giving us the background of Dr. King, some of his thoughts and how he came to where he's thinking as far as religion is concerned. And by the way, if you're looking for a church home and you're in the, the DMV area and, and you're a conscious brother and sister, the best place to stop by is a Union Temple Baptist Church. You, everybody will tell you that. But uh, Dr. Wilson, Pamela is calling us from Upper Marlboro, has a question for you or, or a comment. Mm-hmm. She's on line one. Good morning, Pamela. Good morning, and thank you, uh, Carl, for uh, allowing uh, and controlling the correct narrative of King with your guest today. You had Snowden on earlier who said even though King died at 39 years old, his heart due to stress was that of a 60-year-old. Uh, Reverend Riley Wilson, can you address mm-hmm. uh, King's fight and sacrifice for us as a people for really not he didn't want us to be considered and treated as second-class citizens as opposed to this ideology that he was an integrationist. Can you address that, please? Yes, uh, I think that I would do that in terms of looking at uh, what his mentors taught, uh, and that is that uh, Jesus was on the side of the oppressed, and that was a burning commitment that Martin had to the extent that 
He gave his life trying to uplift and elevate our people to give us a sense of value and worth. We know when he talked about if you're going to be a street sweeper, be the best street sweeper. What you, the point of that was emphasizing the fact you have value, even though you live in a society that uh, relegates you to inferior positions and refuses to give you proper education and employment and uh, positions that will cause you to grow and develop. You know, do do your best at where you are and recognize that you still have value, even though uh, they have put you in such a position where uh, they deem you to be less than, that you do have value, you do have worth. So uh, I think that's the very much the essence of his message to our people. He was always speaking to our people, telling them, telling us what we can do, what we can be, the value that we have as human beings created in the image and the likeness of God. Uh, and that was his, his, his primary teaching to us as a people, as opposed to uh, uh, trying to uh, integrate and be with others who uh, rejected us at every turn, you know. And, of course, in the final analysis, in, in that conversation that he had with Belavante, uh he came to that conclusion, you know, hey, I've been trying to go in the wrong direction on this because uh, it, it seems like an exercise in futility. So can I also ask you then the idea of this uh, laughing up the white man and living in the white man's neighborhood and dealing with their businesses and leaving our schools and all this other stuff. Do you think that was a hijack by the others as opposed to, like you were saying, that was in King's goal, but it was probably hijacked and taken on from that perspective? And I'll take that response um, listening to you on the air. I most definitely think so. Uh, you know, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, she she wrote an article in the Orlando Sentinel newspaper uh, back around 1954 at the, when the Supreme Court decision was being uh, was coming forward about integrating and what have you. And uh, of course, she grew up in Eatonsville, Florida, where her father was the mayor. It was an all black town. They had their own school system. They had their own everything. She said, uh, I hate to write this, but I need to write it. I must write it. And she said, you know, it's like, um, she said, many of you are not from the country, but if you're from the country, she said, if there's a herd of horses, if there is a white horse, all of the other horses of other colors will follow the white horse. She said, this that's the whole thing with God, too. She said, this integration piece, we are following the white horse thinking, uh, that's going to make us better. But she said, why should we integrate? And she was dealing with her frame of reference when we have communities of our own. And, of course, uh, aside from Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, there were over 50 self-contained black communities in Oklahoma alone. Uh, Seneca Village in New York uh, was the – there were more black homeowners where Central Park is now. Uh, of course, uh, they took uh, Seneca Village by eminent domain and made it into Central Park, but that was one of the most powerful black communities in America in the uh, late 1800s. Uh, more black homeowners in, in Seneca Village than anywhere in the United States. So we lost an awful lot by uh, thinking that the white man's ice was colder, and we literally and essentially walked away 
from all the everything that we had, our schools, our banks, our hospitals, uh, everything that we had built and developed, uh, which is what Booker T. Washington was so, so profound in his teaching. He said, basically, forget uh, the, the, the oppressor, white folks. Let your bucket down where you are and, and do your own thing. Get that land, of course, created many black millionaires, many of whom could not read or write because they took his message to heart and took that land and began the potato king of the world, black man who uh, started out not knowing how to read or write, uh, was was shipping potatoes all over the world uh, and got the title as the potato king of the world because he produced so many uh, white potatoes on his, on his land. He was one of many. In uh, in the book by Booker T. Washington, Negroes in Business, who became millionaires and multimillionaires by simply ignoring this whole notion of trying to prove something to the oppressor what to do for self. All right. 800-450-7876. A moment we speak with A. Peter Bailey and discuss Malcolm's relationship with Dr. King. But Leo's calling us from Baltimore. He's online, too. Good morning, Leo. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Leo there on line two. Hey, Willie Wilson, how are you guys doing? Good. How are you doing? Okay. Happy New Year to you all. I just want to recount just for a moment some brief history here in Baltimore City that I think is relevant. Uh, I became a student civil rights leader in 1961-62, Morgan State College at that time. We worked with the interdenominational Ministers Alliance here in Baltimore City, Maryland. And I couldn't, we couldn't find a better association from which we were able to amass support from ministers in this coalition who were on the firing line, whether it was public accommodations to fight or the freedom rides on the Eastern Shore or sit in demonstrations or the fight to integrate the prisons or penal system here in the state of Maryland. And you had people like uh, Reverend Dr. Marion Bascom. I guess these names will ring true with you. Pastor of Douglas, yeah, Memorial, Douglas Memorial Community Church, the Reverend Robert, Reverend Robert Newbold, Grace Presbyterian Church, Reverend Dr. Sidney Daniels, Emmanuel Christian Community Church, Reverend Dr. Frank Williams, Metropolitan United Methodist Church, and many others. I, Logan Kearse, Cornerstone, Dr. Harold Carter, uh, New Shiloh, and we can go on and on. This is just to say that uh, as a student leader, both in both organizations, Congress of Racial Equality and Civic Interest Group, uh, I was privileged. 
I, I was allowed to become a spokesperson for the Alliance and for the Civic Interest Group uh, with regard to the integration of the segregated prison system here in the state. Uh, in 1964, I had my only meeting with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the Prince Hall Masonic Temple. The Masons were hosting at the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a regional meeting here at which Dr. King spoke in April of 1964. And of course, Stokely Carmichael was present and others. And as a young student leader, I did not, I thought there was going to be some kind of conflict between Stokely and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. The opposite was true. They were back slapping. Uh, I, I was in awe of Dr. King because I thought he might be a little stiff. Not at all. He was just upbeat positive, and we were moving in the right direction. Now, I understand today because there's some one or two inches of snow in the forecast, some folks are going to cancel events. I'm going to say to folks, stiffen your spine, stiffen your resolve. Don't let a little snow stop you from doing what is right and righteous. And I say to you guys, keep up the good work. We've got to stay on the battlefield. Because the enemy is going to attack us, whether it's rain, snow, or blow, and we must never surrender. And King pointed us in that direction. And I'm so proud to have been associated with all of these leaders here in this city. It just makes me so proud. Many have gone on to glory, but we've got to nurture a new generation of freedom fighters. And if we don't, we're dead on arrival. Thank you, guys. God bless all of you. All right. Thanks, Leo. All right. Reverend Wilson, before we let you go, is there anything you think that Dr. King will be speaking about had he lived to today for his 95th birthday? Well, I think obviously as we look around, we don't see much difference in the, the lot of the masses of our people. So he essentially would be saying the same thing, you know. Um, uh, you know, he gave three speeches uh, several months before he was assassinated, all of which had the same content. One was crisis in American cities in 1969, uh, uh, 1967, following 150 riots in America. The second was before the Association of Psychologists, American Association of Psychologists, and the third was before the board of SCLC. He quoted, uh, uh, made a great quote at that time, uh, and 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 in that quote he said. Um, uh, where there is darkness, sins will be committed. But the guilty ones are not those who commit the, the crimes, but those who created the darkness. He went on to say white America has uh, created the darkness. And he said if uh, a real measure who the real criminal is, uh, when we look at uh, the crimes committed by white America, the true criminal would be white America. I know that we have crime in our community. I know we have lack of education. I know we have lack of employment. I know that we have slums. He said, but all of these are derivative of the racism of white people in this country. He would be saying that same thing and calling America to task, to deal with the inequity, the inequality, the oppression of our people. And at the same time, to encourage our people, as the brother just said a moment ago, 
to keep our heads up, to keep fighting, and don't give up, uh, and understand that we must fight. We must keep up the battle and the struggle for the liberation of our people. All right. Thank you, Reverend Wilson. Thank you for sharing those thoughts with us this morning. All right. Have a great day. All righty. As uh, uh, Carla mentioned, Leo from Baltimore is snowing. It's uh, snow flurries in Baltimore and in D.C. this morning. So please drive carefully. We've got to take a short break. Peter Bailey's on deck. We're going to talk about Malcolm's relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. And now we welcome A. Peter Bailey, journalist and professor, to a microphone. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Carl. How you doing, man? Excellent, brother. You know, help us out here with Dr. King and and, and Brother Malcolm, because people, you, you were close to, around Malcolm's organization, but people saw them as, as rivals. Was was that is that a true and accurate description of their relationship? That their that relationship was growing, I'll put it that way. Those two brothers both were beginning to recognize that it was important. They had enough sense and enough commitment to our people to understand that they could not let their differences keep them from doing what was important, which is to have a more unified approach to fighting the white supremacists in the United States. And 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 I think that's what that's what made those two brothers so great. I got a copy of a letter that Brother Malcolm wrote in nineteen on uh, July thirty first, nineteen sixty three. He was still in the nation of Islam. And he sent this letter to to leaders of the civil rights movement, including Dr. King. He said to each one of them individually. And I just want to read very quickly, it was just a little part of it. he said, if capitalistic Kennedy and communistic Khrushchev can find something in, in common on which to force a united front, despite their their trans, their trans, despite their uh, tremendous uh, ideological differences, it is a disgrace for Negro leaders not to be able to submerge our quote-unquote minor differences in order to to seek a common solution to a common. Uh, to a common problem caused by a common enemy, and he has common enemy underlined. And just one last quick thing: he says on August third, on Saturday, August tenth, from one to seven p.m., the, the Muslims uh, uh, are sponsoring a, another giant audience rally at eleven hundred and sixteen in Lenox Avenue. The, the the grievance call for this the the, the previous call for this summer at the same location attracted 5,000 to 7,000 uh, uh, Harlemites, respectively. We expect our largest crowd this time, uh, rain or shine. We're inviting uh, several Negro leaders to give them anal- analysis of the present race problems and and also their solution. We still also explain Mr. Muhammad. We will also explain Mr. Muhammad's solution. And listen to this, brother. There will be no debating, arguing, criticizing, or condemning. I will I will moderate this 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 meeting and guarantee order and courtesy for all speakers. 
Now, that was in 1963. Later, when Brother Malcolm formed the Organization of Afro-American Unity, he invited Dr. King to speak. Whenever we had our rallies, they would have a speaker. He invited Dr. King to speak at one time. And he made it very clear to, to us ahead of time that, 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 that should, again, that should be courtesy and respect given to Dr. King when he came to speak at, at the OAAU rally. So, and, 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 and when they, well, of course, there's that famous photograph of them uh, meeting in, um, when they ran that into each other in the airport, and they shook hands and had no time to talk. They were both going to catch flames. But, but, but brother, there were people in Brother Malcolm's group and people in Dr. King's group who were having quiet meetings with each other in order to set up a meeting with these two brothers, to set up a, a more for organized, formal meeting with these two brothers. So this was something that they both were working on, and they, and they both considered it very important to our, to our future as a people. And the very fact that they did to show you that they, these men were not being driven by some kind of uh, me, myself, and I, they were fighting and, and out there struggling for us as a people. And they were looking for the best way to do this. And they were, they were moving very closely toward the idea that their working together would benefit us, you know, as a group of people. And you mentioned that the the, the people was, were having conversations about coming together. Now that we know about COINTELPRO and J. J. Edgar Hoover, what he was doing, do you think he got wind of this and, and started to uh, uh, speed up his, his, his role to get, take both of them out? After figuring yes. they were coming together, brother, he was worried about those two brothers even before then. And in a book by a, a white writer, I cannot figure his name right away, but he wrote a book on Jagger Hoover in 1992. And he has one mention of brother Malcolm in that book by 400 some pages, and he says that that Hoover, at a luncheon meeting with Senator Lyndon Johnson. So if it was Senator Lyndon Johnson, that means it had to be before 1960, because Johnson became vice president in 1960. At this meeting, Hoover said to Senator Lyndon Johnson, quote, we wouldn't have any problem if we could get those two guys fighting, and we could get them to kill one another off, end of quote. Those two guys were Brother Malcolm and Dr. King. Hmm. Now, and, later, oh, later, when Hoover set up COINTELPRO, this was after the assassination of Brother Malcolm, when he when he started really getting COINTELPRO structured, it, there's a section of it where they list the things they have to do, and it said, quote, we must prevent the rise of a black messiah. Malcolm X could have been one had he not been killed. And then he lists possibility to, to, to uh, order, uh, another messiah, and Dr. King was one of the three people that he listed. So it is obvious that Diego Hoover feared more than anyone else, he feared those two men, Brother Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King. And 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 as a, and of course what happened? They both ended up assassinated. Right. Twenty eight after the top yeah. Didn't uh Brother Malcolm attempt to meet with Doctor King I think when Doctor King was in jail or something? When 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 Doctor King was in Selma in jail in Selma, Brother Malcolm went down there, but he did not, they had a meeting with each other and had a discussion, you know, the, 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 the total thing of that discussion I have never seen, 
just what, what we were able to get from, from them. But it was, but I know it was around the whole question of them working together and devising a means where they could work together for the for the benefit of our people. Because both of those brothers had a very strong uh, commitment to the freedom, justice, and equality of, of black folks. And they and and so they 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 were not the kind of people who let their own personal things transcend their beliefs in in the necessity of unity for our people. And they were both working towards that. When you were with the AO with with the group, the Malcolm's group, did he ever discuss Dr. King or any other civil rights leaders? As I said before, he had Dr. King. He invited Dr. King to speak at one of our at one of our meetings. And he invited some of the others too. They never, they didn't do it. But Dr. King came, so he understood. That's what, as he said before, if communistic Khrushchev and capitalist Kennedy can get together to fight the problem, when they have a mutual interest, then why can't we do the same thing? That's a question we need to ask today, because basically he was saying they stay on code, as Neely Fuller teaches us. When he comes to us, they stay on code. But we we just fail to stay on code. We're still fighting each other. We let our differences with each other keep us from getting together. He said, if these two men, who who were depicted as being absolute total enemies on every single possible issue, but there was something that was going on where they felt a mutual interest, and I think it was the rise of China. And, and 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 so they got together. They started having little meetings with each other, very quiet. They didn't make them big publicity type things, but they were, they were having meetings with each other. And 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 Brother Malcolm believed strongly that the that the leadership uh, in the in the civil rights movement. And the, see, we call our organization a human rights organization, which was the the international term. That's why we didn't use civil, they called ourselves civil rights. But he felt as though that it was extremely important for leaders of the civil rights organization, especially Dr. King, and of the human rights organizations, to get together and and, de- and, and develop an effective way to promote and, and uh, protect the, the interests of, of our people. That's right. We need them to do it right now as well. 29 away from the top of the hour. Daryl's joining us uh, from Baltimore. He's on line one. Daryl, you're on with Peter Bailey. Yes. To all your guests, I have a statement and a question right quick. We as a people have lost our direction of the black culture. We talk about our past, but not really. We know very little about our past. Our past has proven that we were, what we are, and what we can be again. The black culture has been hijacked and hidden, like Neely Fuller said, the coded. I beg our black churches to research and teach our story in order to correct his story. Our story will give our children the needed tools to grasp what God has instilled in each and every one of us, and it will awaken the teachers the parents, and the elders to the truth, for the truth will make us free. It will change the culture of oppression. We've done it before. We can do it again. We're the only ones that live in the condition we live in these inner cities. You have people who come here have never lived here in their life, and they're set up. They're taken care of. Their schools are successful. We have 23 schools in Baltimore City that failed. There's a reason why it failed, because we haven't taken control of our schools, because we don't know our history. Thank you, brother. All right. Thank you, Daryl. Uh, thank you for that comment. Uh, Peter, you want to respond to anything that uh, Daryl just said? Yes, I just want to say to that, brother, history is just absolutely important. It is absolutely important, and there's absolutely no reason. And I'm telling you, brother, when I said, I mean, there is no reason 
in 2023 that we as a group of people are not teaching our children our history. I, and I don't think we should be fighting to try to get the public schools to teach our history. We should watch them very closely. They don't teach a lot of anti-African or anti-black stuff. But to teach, they are never going to teach our children our real history. It is up to us. I believe that black churches, black sororities, black fraternities, black civic organizations, black business organizations, I think these black journalistic organizations, these organizations should make teaching our history a part of their, whatever they do, a part of their agenda. Because that is the only way our children, and it is extremely important for our children to learn history. Why do you think that the, the, the white supremacists, one of the first things they do is go after the teaching of history? Because we know how important that is psychologically and eventually physically. So they go after the teaching of history. They, are, they, they watch every second to see that history is taught in a way that, that, that makes them seem like they are some kind of eternal gods. And I'm saying that we need to take that, take a position that we are going to teach our children our history. I think what those people are doing um, uh, down in, uh, where was it? I think it down in Georgia somewhere where they, they, they were having that problem. So the black folks got together and they were start teaching, teaching, teaching uh, black children history rather than wait depending on the public school system. I think we should do that all over this country, man. It is up to us. The teaching of our history is extremely important. Right. Now hold that thought right there, Peter. We got to take a short break here and we come back. Brother Nkosi, I want to speak to you. He's calling from Chicago. So hold that thought right there, uh, Peter. 800-450-7876, the number to call. Speak to Peter Baylor discussing Malcolm's relationship with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King on this King Day holiday. We'll take a break. Uh, 26 away from the top. We're back in four minutes, though, with your phone calls right here and Peter Bailey on 1010 WOLB in Baltimore. And, of course, in the DMV, Ron FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, for information, is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes away from the top of the hour. Happy King Day as well. It's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and this is a federal holiday, and that's what we're talking about this morning with our guest, uh, Peter Bailey. Peter actually was one of the last persons to speak to Brother Malcolm, and right now discussing um, Brother Malcolm's relationship with Dr. King, because some people have, have you know, exaggerated and some people have underestimated Peter setting the record straight for us. Before we go back to him, we've got a bunch of folks who want to talk to him on tweets as well. So I want to remind you, coming up in the next few days, we're going to speak with uh, banking and financial expert Donald Parker will be here. Also, economist Dr. Julianne Malvo will join us, and Grio Baba Lamuma from Emoja House in the District will be here, along with chemitologist Tony Browder. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on uh, FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, let's take some calls for Peter. Brother Nkosi's calling from Chicago. He's online, too. Brother Nkosi, good morning. Happy King Day. You're on with Peter Bailey. Happy King Day and Jumbo, my brothers. Hi, uh, Brother Bailey. Uh, I got a question about something. I just got through reading a book about Thurgood Marshall, right? Mm-hmm. And this man, prior when Dr. Martin Luther King was still a student in school, 
This man was putting his life on the line, going down in southern courts, winning cases for poor black people charged with capital crimes, and when he had leave, the Klan would be set out upon him. He barely escaped with his life a number of times. He was totally committed to what he saw as fighting for our people. Then later, uh, you know, I never paid uh, Marshall much attention at first, but later I hear some rumor that he may have spied on Dr. King. What I want to know is, do you think that that is another counterintelligence program uh, uh, projection that Thurgood Marshall spied on Dr. King? I'll hang up and listen. Well, I'm not going to say that he spied on him, but I— Thurgood Marshall, to me, was, when I heard him speak a couple of times, he was a total for integration. He did not believe in, in any in the type of thing. He, like, like he was very hostile toward Brother Malcolm uh, because of his belief in, uh, in, in such a strong belief in, in black unity and the need for black unity. And uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, believed in integration. I don't know whether he did or not. I just know that I've heard this, and I've heard it from reliable sources that Thurgood Marshall uh, uh, later became rather hostile towards Dr. Martin Luther King because he felt as though Dr. Martin Luther King was moving too much towards the position being advocated by people such as Brother Malcolm. Yeah, I also heard that he, he was concerned with that communist attack as well. He was sort of an all-American lawyer, if you will, and he was concerned about communism and, it, you know, that tag that they had attached to, to Dr. King. He believed in that. So, yeah, I've heard those stories as well, uh, Brother Peter. So I don't know if it's true or not, but you never know. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, no, I heard him one time make make some, some strong remarks against Dr. King uh, at, a, at a thing I went to where the place is now the Thurgood Marshall Center. I heard him speak over there once, and he, he, was, he was very, he made some, what I consider some very kind of hostile marks about Dr. King. All right, 17 away from the top. Let's go out to L.A. Howard's waiting for us on line one. Howard, good morning. Happy King Day. You're on with Peter Bailey. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Carl. Uh, I, I was a youngster, and to watch why actually King came out to L.A., and to me, we thought they was using that system so much for that. But what really piqued my interest today to call in, he said, like, something about a third party that was in all those talks, and he knew who was, he didn't mention who it was. I'd like to know who who the third party was. Because, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, I'll take my answer off the air, Carl. All right, thanks, right. Howard. Yeah, because we got some more folks and got some tweets for, for Peter. So, Peter, he wants to know who was the third party who was between uh, Dr. King and, and Brother Malcolm? Who was, who, who was the, I guess, the in-between person? Well, w- one of them was the uh, uh, Clarence Jones. Clarence Jones, who was a lawyer uh, who worked with Dr. King, was one of the people who was having those quiet meetings. Uh, to set up a meeting between 
Brother Malcolm and Dr. King. There were several other people involved. There were a couple of, of, of women. One of the women closely associated with Dr. King. She was she was involved in that. So that was this this, this 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 this. But this was being done, you know, on a quiet level. But of course, I'm sure Jagger Hoover. As I said with you before about the two statements that I made. There's nothing that he feared more than a serious relationship between Brother Malcolm and Dr. King. All right, 800-450-7876. Charles III is calling us from the district. He's on line three. Good morning, Charles, and happy uh, King thanks Day. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Brother Peter, uh, my question to you is that you're speaking of these two strong black men who had ideas and beliefs, but when they were murdered, these things never continued. Can you talk about why you don't believe the black community continued their work? And second of all, could you address, there's some talk about Dr. King as a pacifist, and so some black people are not understanding his greatness and, and want to act as if he did a lot of harm to us and overlooking all the good he did. And I'll take your response out the air, brother. Okay, right, thanks, I Charles. think the first, thing, the first thing I would say, brother, is this. When I talk about Brother Malcolm and Dr. King, I never use the word killed or murdered. I say assassinated, because assassinated right away puts it into, gives it a, you know, a political perspective as opposed to kill who's killed by who's he murdered by so you say assassinated right away that's a different whole different word of, of, of toward what happened to those two brothers they were assassinated and and number two i i do believe that that there are people out there who believe in both of these men and who have a commitment to the ideas and the the things that they were setting up for us but we have just never gotten together we we talk about it, and and that to me that's our fault. I'm not believing nobody else. The fact that the people who are strong supporters of Dr. King and strong supporters of Brother Malcolm, the fact that we have not, even this latest 2023, have a serious organization for our people, uh, based on the on the on the on the commitment to the ideas and the guidelines and the directions provided by these two brothers, that's our fault. And, and and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves that 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 and, that, and I'm including myself in that that we've not been able to put together something an organization uh, or, or that 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 combines the ideas of these two brothers and becomes an effective name for us to protect our interests in this society. I think we should put together a conference where we have experts, serious serious experts in the fields of health, economics. Communications, uh, politics, culture, technology, uh, and Pan-Africanism. We should have people who have serious commitment. Each one of these areas come up with concrete things that they can suggest that we do in these arenas, and then we bring them together and present it to our people as better ways of promoting and protecting our interests in this society. The fact that the supporters of Brother Malcolm and the people who strongly support Brother King have not gotten together, that is our fault. Yeah, I totally agreed on that. Twelve away from the top. I got a tweet question for you. Gail says, uh, ask your guest, can he suggest where is a good place to start teaching our children in the home regarding our history? Is it so much is it so much uh, history is so much for to learn. We are so far lost and some do not know where to start. I know books is one way, et cetera. There, 
there are children's books out there that that have some directory history for young people. I think, and when I think we should start that when they're like going into, you know, in elementary school, we should begin to teach our people. Just first, by, I think we start by giving them, make sure they know the names of people. You know, they know they may have heard the name Brother Malcolm, they may have heard Martin Luther King, but we should make sure they know out of out of E. Wells that they know the name of. Lerone Bennett Jr., that they know the name of Harold Cruz, they know the name of Mary McLeod. It's up to us to make sure that our children know these people's names. We should we should present them with something that has these people's birthdays on them so that we can, so that, that on that birthday in our in our families, in our homes, maybe we get together as a group and celebrate the birthday of Mary McLeod Perfume, celebrate the birthday of Marcus Garvey, celebrate the birthday of, of, of Dr. Uh, of Martin Luther King, celebrate the birthday of Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, celebrate the birthday of Dr. C. Dolores Tucker. You know, we should make sure that our children are aware of these people and just by start, by by celebrating their birthdays at home. If we don't do it at home as an individual family, then do it as a group. It's an organization. If you have an organization, make sure you have you you you'll have a, a, a some kind of day where you acknowledge uh, the birthdays of these kind of people and make sure that you discuss it with your, with your young people and your children. Now, with older people, we should recommend that they we should recommend that they take and read books. Their focus on our history. Read Lerone Bennett. Read Harold Cruz. Read uh, 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 people who uh, Doc, Dr. C. Dolores Tucker. Or uh, read Barry McLeod the food. Read uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. Read things about these people, and if they have questions about it, make sure that we can direct them where they can get these books and this information from. There's like the Sankofa Bookstore here in here in D.C. That's a bookstore that would that has books and things by these kinds of people. We should direct our children there. We should take them there so they can see a whole wall of books about black folks. Yeah, you know, early ten away, ten away from the top of the hour, Peter. Earlier, you mentioned the fact that. We haven't seen a leader like a Dr. King or Brother Malcolm, but we know what the end was in both of those young men, and they were very young when they when they were they left us. Do you think that's the reason why we haven't seen another Malcolm or another Martin? I think we haven't seen them because we, as a people, have not gotten together. We 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 you know we have had you know we have not gotten together. We go to, we we have not developed a sense of unity. We don't follow what Dr. King said. We were opposed as a group, and we must overcome. We were oppressed as a group, and we must overcome that oppression as a group. Brother, how many times have you heard a young person today in any kind of position use that quote when you're talking about Dr. King? You re- I, I don't think I have to ever hear anyone talk about that, that Dr. King. We were oppressed as a group. And we must overcome that oppression as a group. I don't. You don't hear any young people, let's say under thirty, talking about the absolute necessity for group unity and using that quote to. to you, well, I'm not going to say you don't, because I've heard some young people do it, but that, but they are the ones. They are they are not recognized. They're not given any kind of serious support by the community. They, everybody wants to go and hear Dr. King. They talk about him as a dreamer, and black folks go out there and listen to it and hear him talk about it as a dreamer. But if we're going to really support Dr. King, the brother said we have been oppressed as a group, and we must overcome that oppression as a group. So All to right. me, anybody who's serious about 
Dr. King would be promoting unity among our people. All right, let me get this in real quick because you've got about 60 seconds. Could there have been a Dr. King or a Malcolm? Did they need each other? Did, is, is that why we, we now can look back and see what they were trying to do, but they couldn't do it alone? Your thoughts? Well, they, they did have, they had one quick meeting at an airport, you we got famous of them shaking hands, but they were both rushing, so they didn't have a time to talk to each other. And when Brother Malcolm went down to Selma, uh, they would not let him in the jail to see Dr. King when he went to Selma. They would not allow him to go. He spoke there, and, and he spoke at the rallies that they had, but the, but the the authorities down there would not allow Brother Malcolm to go to the, to the prison to see Dr. King. And I think those of us who profess... A, a commitment to these two brothers, it is our responsibility, no matter what is going on around us, it is our responsibility to get together and bring together the guidance that these two brothers gave us and begin to, to use it to, to, to develop a more unified position among our people. We can do that. It is up to us with this new technology out there. It is up to us. And we can no longer blame anyone else. All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for sharing that with us. And you're absolutely right. It's up to us, family. We can make and we can make it happen. Just we as can like make we, it happen. yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can make it happen. We just have to, you know, put our minds in the right direction. And thank you for sharing that. Those, uh, the information about uh, Dante King and and Brother Malcolm as well, Peter. Thank you for sharing that with us today on this thank King you very Day, much, Carl. 2024. All right, family. We're done for the day, but we want you to continue to think about Dr. Martin Luther King today on on the, today's birthday. He would be 95 years old today, and what he sacrificed for each and every single one of us. I know some of you don't feel that way, but he was. Just if you just think back, what Dr. King did and what he meant to us, and you'll understand what I'm trying to say. Anyway, let's get out of here. We want you to enjoy your King Day. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, six o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, and also in the DM. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.